Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is your host Sakib Ali, and today's installment of the episode of the podcast will cover evolution of fandom and media and Twitter. So, as the cliche goes, if you are the smartest voice in the room, then you are in the wrong room. And I, this has been some sort of a motto on my podcast. I always try to surround myself with knowledgeable talent, so that voices can enhance my experience, and also I can hide behind the knowledge. And today we'll discuss the three mentioned points, and they are. Uh, according to me there are three integral parties in cricket you know or any sport it's the players the practitioners media the communicators the storytellers and of course us fans the consumers and all are very integral for the industry's ecosystem and there's a lot of ground to cover so let's just get into the introductions they are all repeat guests i have an honor of uh, uh, introducing and pardon the hyperbole the iconic uh, cricket storyteller writer uh, mr ayaz memon it's an honor that he's already gracing the show for the fourth time welcome to the show ayaz Thank you, thank you, Sakib. And then uh, two of my good friends, uh, Vijay Aramagam from Sydney, 11 p.m. There, he's become you know, the resident voice of this podcast. Has actually helped grow this podcast a long way. Uh, he's uh, you know like a powerhouse cricket fan historian, you can say. Uh, Vijay, uh, you, there's a book coming up that you're working on, so just give a brief intro, and then we can move on to Sharon's introduction. Thank you, uh, thank you, Sakib, uh, for having me once again. Um, so it's a ple- pleasure to be with uh, Sharan and Ayaz and uh, as you said Sakib um, I'm just uh, I'm in the process of writing a book on uh, uh, sports cricket and uh, a bit of uh, journalism as well thank you very much yeah and talking of books Ayaz had a book that uh, came out you know uh, it's called Indian innings journey of indian cricket if you haven't got the copy you know try getting it it's available on amazon india us anywhere uh so yeah that's uh, uh, another book and last but not the least uh, on this panel today is uh, my good friend Sharan Mamadipuri who's uh, in some ways the founding father of this podcast at least my tennis podcast he helped me establish how the podcast works so he's been on the podcast you know a few years ago now he's an assistant professor in uh, University of Maryland Sharan welcome back to the show thank you so much sake really really happy to be here and very honored to be in such august company uh, especially uh, both ayas sir and vijay but uh, ayas sir i've followed your work for so long so it's really great to kind of be here so thanks thanks for the kind words sharan so one small plug in sharan you have a book that just came out it's not a cricket book but we thought we'll just announce it here last among equals so just give a 30 second introduction what the book is and you're going to india for the launch Yeah so uh, thanks Akib so the book is called Last Among Equals the subtitle is Power Caste and Politics in Bihar's Villages I am an economist by training and this kind of distills 10 years of field work research and data on Bihar but written for the average reader so this is basically anybody can pick this up if you have a if you want to know how life lives are lived in the villages of Bihar uh, this is kind of a nice kind of introduction to uh, that topic it's got like passionate uh, people Uh, at the margins of society trying to fight for their rights kind of pitted against uh, scheming politicians it's got violence it's got laughter um and uh, all in the form of anecdotes so that's basically the book and it's out in india it's published by amazon westlands context imprint lovely all right so you know uh, i'm excited to take a deeper dive here with all these esteemed uh, members of the panel so ayasa i'll start with you I, i know we did like few episodes and on patodi and then even your own uh, iconic cricket journey but uh, if in a nutshell you know uh, you are here today as one of the most uh, you know senior indian cricket storytellers and you've been from the 83 world cup and everything what is your journey as a fan been because you still are a fan behind 
So how, how has that evolved over the years? I mean, look, when you're a journalist, especially if you're a sports writer, uh, then you also are willy-nilly a fan. If you're not a fan of sports and sports personalities, then I doubt that you'll become a, a sports writer or a sports journalist. Unlike, say, if you are uh, you know, a political writer, you may not be a fan at all uh, of, of the politicians or the political policies that play out and the people who play out those policies. And yet, you might do it as a, strongly as a professional uh, because you are passionate about the profession of journalism. So in this case, there's an overlap in sports because uh, the attraction or the seduction of sports is so strong and so heavy. And as you mentioned, it never leaves you. So I'm in my, what, 43rd year in journalism. And uh, I still, you know, it's almost as if I'm wearing two hats every time I go and see a match uh, at, the, at the stadium or even if I'm watching it on television. I'm a fan as well as I'm a journalist. Sometimes one over, you know, supersedes the other, but I try and hold that back in check. Uh, I want, I don't want the fan to run amok. Uh, I still, if I'm writing a story, I don't want to be seen as purely a gushing fan unless there is strong need to be like that. For instance, seeing couple they make 175 not out uh, at, at Tunbridge Wells is something so memorable uh, that you can never get over it. You can't get over gushing. Uh, get you can't you know not gush over it even now after so many years so i i i think that look how fandom has changed is uh, you know it would take a volume to to explain it from the time when i started watching watching cricket i mean the a lot of the changes have come because of how the the media industry has evolved uh, how society has evolved how technology is enabling access to sporting action for fans. So, I mean, these are, you know, three of the uh, important, important uh, you know, uh, poles on which fandom can, uh, can hang. I'm sure there are many more. Uh, and, you know, our co-panelists, my co-panelists on this uh, will be able to spell out even more aspects of what fandom means, I'm sure. Uh, but, the, you know, you, you start at a very young age, enjoying sport. You enjoy it, I think, largely when you start playing it. You may or may not make the cut. You may not become very good at it. You may remain very, you know, moderately good. If that, you may be not good at all. But if you get hooked onto sports, if sports enters your system, so to speak, it becomes part of your DNA, then it's very difficult to shrug it off. You know, it's not easy. It's like learning bicycling. Once you've learned how to cycle, you can never forget it for the rest of your life. So however stressful your job or your life, otherwise, however preoccupied with you may be with so many other things, you will keep a line open for knowing what's happening in, in sports or feeding of information or at least if nothing else, you know, in the, in the current scenario, when we are also stressed for time, you will at least watch the highlights, so to speak, or hear a podcast about it or some snippets of commentary which have gone viral on social media. Uh, and, you know, to, in, in the case of Indian cricket, just to put it in a nutshell, Indians were crazy about cricket from the time I can remember, from the time, you know, I, I at the age of five or seven or eight, six or seven, when I got introduced to cricket, uh, and the first time I went to see a match, 1964, at the at the cricket club of India, India versus Australia, and 
you know, my luck that I saw India win and I got hooked for life. But those were the days of capacity crowds at stadium in India, stadia in India. Yeah, there used to be only test matches. There was no one-day cricket. And when I look back, I wonder how did people find so much time to spend five days at the match? You know, were they not working? Were they taking bunking office? What were they doing, you know, to come and spend five days? I can understand myself going and spending five days as a match because I'm paid to do it. That's my job. Uh, but people attending, not just following the following the match, but physically being present is something that boggles my mind now. Maybe the world was different. And therefore, I said how society and nations evolve also has an impact on sport and the, and the fandom. Uh, you know, People are preoccupied today. There are more jobs to attend to. If not jobs, there's other other matters to attend to. Physical presence has become a constraint. Also, attending or watching sports live at a venue has become expensive. So, it's not uh, easily affordable. Uh, and also, there are now multiple options. So, you can pick and choose. If you've got a long season like it happens in India, that you've got a home season, you've got the domestic matches and then you've got international matches like we had which in between India and New Zealand now. And then you have the IPL. So I was at the Vankhede Stadium watching India beat New Zealand uh, in, the, in the second test match. And it wasn't a bad crowd because there was only 25% attendance allowed. But it wasn't a, uh, you know the kind of crowd you would expect to see or you will see in, a, in an IPL game. Certainly more than what you would see Mumbai playing some other team in the in in, in Ranji Trophy, which unfortunately, to my mind, is a, is a sad development because uh, my journey in cricket got strengthened by watching a lot of domestic cricket, and that was the lifeline of uh, the lifeline of cricket for any country. But the IPL has come in, so people now plan out their you know viewership pattern for the season in advance because there's money to be spent, there's time to be allocated. How many members of the family will go? IPL has got, you know, is attractive to all members of the family uh, and, and so on. And therefore, people are deciding or dividing their consumption of sports between attending a, a match live, uh, listening to it on the radio, watching TV, following it on their mobile handsets, watching highlights, watching glimpses, getting into, you know, live streaming as much as they can. In office hours, following it, you know, during during the break for lunch or for tea, and so on. What I'm trying to say is, from sheer physical attendance, and maybe following the sport on All India Radio, there are now, you know, diverse ways in which you can consume sport, and that's what is, you know, is a fascinating development in, in brought about by uh, economics, societal development as well as uh, technology. And I think that's, that's, that's the way I see it sitting now. Sure. Uh, that's, uh, that's quite the unpacking there and nothing less was expected. So Vijay, I'll bring you in. So just consider the you know, baton of time. You know, Ayasab is giving the fan baton to you in a relay race. And um, you, your entry point is in the 80s, like myself, uh, the Gavaskar couple years. So I'll just throw a different curveball here because I think there's a lot of agreement on what Ayaz Saab said. How has fandom changed according to you, especially Vijay the fan? And I'll even throw in a different difficult one here. Uh, is it okay to criticize your own team? Because, you know, we live in a very, very live wire Twitter space. And, you know, you could be clubbed very differently very soon if you say something against a beloved hero or the beloved team. 
So the floor is yours. Uh, thanks, Akib. Um, so basically, uh, let me give a bit of a background about how my fandom has evolved, as you rightly said, right? Uh, I kind of got into cricket in 1984-85, where TV was there, where I lived in the southern Tamil Nadu uh, uh, location. Uh, the TV was available, not Doordarshan, India State Broadcaster, but uh, Rupa Vahini, which is a Sri Lankan broadcasting corporation. So we had access to satellite TV or, or foreign TV, uh, telecasting live sports when satellite TV wasn't present. So it was a pretty unique situation. Then we had Doordarshan. Then uh, from the uh, 93 onwards, we had the prime sports and, uh, you know, uh, the, the star network was there. So I kind of missed out on the radio network or radio was there. I've, I've, I've listened to a little bit of radio when India toured Australia in 91, 92, or when India went to South Africa in 92, 93, or when India went to England in 90 as well, because those series, the test series weren't shown live. We, we got only highlights. Uh, so I've, I've listened to a little bit on radio, but mostly I had the access to the television. And from 93 onwards, pretty, pretty much started to get all kinds of uh, cricket, not just played by India and overseas. We started with some highlights, but uh, as I have said, we had more options, right? Previously, uh, a test match cricket, you have to live in a Madras or Chennai or a Bombay or a Delhi because it used to just come to those big cities and uh, it used to be probably once in, once a year, once in two years. You had to go and attend. Versus now the TV had made a, a cricket very accessible to people in small villages, places like where I grew up, like Komadikote or Tutukuri. Now it was known as Tutukur in, in South Tamil Nadu. So TV made the game more accessible. That's a very important thing. And also very important thing, what happened when I grew up was uh, the commentary available. Right From 93 onwards, we had those Ian Chapels, uh, we had the Tony Greggs, we had even Richie Benos, right? Not just from overseas. They started to, uh, Jeff Boycott, I should add, right? These uh, experts started to come to India and they were part of those series in India, which means you sit in a, your house. I mean, someone like me, I've never played cricket at any decent level, uh, none whatsoever. But listening to an Ian Chapel or a Jeff Boycott, you understood how a leg cutter was different to an off cutter, how the swing was different to a seam and, you know, right over the left and, you know, how different a pull to a cut. So the, the learning was more because the pictures were getting better. The quality of the, uh, the TV uh, telecast was much better. And also we, we got these best advices or the best insights uh, from the best of the experts, former players, right? That was a huge boon growing up. But then... <clears throat> I think internet was a very important thing, though we started to get internet in the late 90s in India. I started to, even me being a cricket fan, I think around 2002, what, what happened? I think when England came to India in 2001 or even before that, when, uh, when Australia came to India in 2001, I started to listen, I mean, you know, go, go online and read the Sydney Morning Herald, the Guardian, the Telegraph in the UK and the Times. So the access to internet gave us uh, the ability to read what the British or the Australian press were writing about the series played over, played in India or overseas. I think the other thing that opened up, once you started to read those foreign articles, there were comments in the section. So it's not just you read, you also read what the viewers, common viewers in England and Australia felt. Then around 2003 or four, I started to get into 2000, late 2003. BBC Test Match Special had a, a, an internet forum which is like a message board uh, for cricket fans to come and discuss cricket. To me, that was an absolute boon because that happened at a time when I was at work, which means even during work hours, you could access uh, on one browser. 
uh, and you had access to you know Pakistani fans, English fans, Australian fans coming and discussing cricket, which wasn't there before. Even when TV was accessible, you just listened to six or seven voices. Suddenly, you're you're you've got a completely different level playing field, or a, a different. The game has changed because you're able to interact. Of course, that led to some. very bad behavior fan wars started to happen between the indians and pakistanis in fact the bbc test match special uh, message board had to they had to pretty much suspend the whole thing and it was reported in the times of london newspaper because of the indo pak fan wars so i've seen all of that then we had these uh, message boards like i was part of a, a pakistani cricket uh, forum pak cricket bus and then i was part of an indian cricket forum called cricket forum and again again there i realized the cricket fandom can be really really different and diverse and uh, of multitude uh, nature i should say because i thought i had a good understanding of the history of the game and i having read having watched but then you go there people use numbers a lot uh, the the logic they bring in the extra elements and also how an indian fan thinks versus how an english fan thinks and also the access to newspapers from overseas allowed us to know more about rugby and football whilst we watched it which means suddenly when you have more knowledge of other sports and when you interact with other fans the 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 ideas uh, your mind opens up and you're able to uh, you're able to digest a lot more information it gives it started to give a very different perspective or insights i, I would say now then as we moved into twitter era i think that's where it has become the game has completely changed because now if you look at it and uh, literally uh, fans are able, not just participants right they are uh, engaging they are participants um, uh, and they are contributing they have a skin in the game which means uh, they have a, a point of view um, they interact with journalists they interact with former players they interact with players which means the feedback mechanism as we say in the it industry from a waterfallish um, slow feedback it has become super agile super fast agile which means the feedback mechanism become a lot shorter which means let's say ias uh, writes an uh, an article and posts it within 5 minutes there'll be 25 comments over there i'm sure somebody will quote tweet it and challenge if there is one factual minor error there'll be an immediate response right so that has become a new norm now right and also the other thing what i want to call it which i'm i'm not participant of but i've seen others do it the fantasy sports i think the fantasy sport has completely changed the game there are some twitter users uh, who are you know living and dying by it in terms of the fantasy sport they had to pick the 11 which means they had to know the data the the you know the starting 11s the pitch conditions what 11s going to be used especially for ipl as well as for international sport so when i see that when people spend so much time doing fantasy sport and making money out of it that kind of tells you that you know the 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 indian fandom especially in indian cricket context where cricket is such a passion it's completely gone somewhere else because people are into this fantasy sport and there are enablers and there are you know what they call influencers on twitter uh, who are giving this prediction so they have their own set of following so to me the game has become completely different and also uh, in terms of fandom to ias's point he's absolutely right right because <clears throat> uh the consumption patterns have changed so let's look at some numbers right uh india might still have i think probably 200 million uh, homes with tv sets uh maybe how many homes have multiple tv sets i don't know but india has over 745 million smartphones so when you have 745 million smartphones those many people are able to access internet 
whether they can uh, you know put something on facebook they can access quick info they can watch a clip so <clears throat> the consumption pattern has completely changed and also the <clears throat> the broadcasting industry the television industry has been disrupted due to this internet which means even quick info right which used to have a, a more friendlier version of a I mean, laptop version or a, a a desktop version of a website they've gone to more of a more of a mobile android and iphone and you know google kind of a thing so that's the evolution i'd like to talk about sakip to your question about uh, uh fandom and you know how people take uh, have a thin skin i'll give an example when i started out vivin richards was my favorite player and i used to cheer for west indies even when they played india so west indies was india i used to cheer for vivin richards and west indies uh, as a young person because he had the aura i mean he was so, sort of you know getting to the end of his cycle but still it's such an aura and he had, his his reputation preceded what he did on the field but then you know 1989 uh, a certain sachin tendulkar came along you know he i mean i was like 4 5 years younger than him so which means it's it's not it's it's going to be very hard not to be impressed by a 16 year old representing a country uh, facing wasim akram and wakar yunus and imran khan so probably someone like sachin tendulkar made me an indian fan uh, though i was used to support west indies but again no one batted an eyelid no one knew outside of my homes or my street that i used to support west indies but now it has kind of become different because on twitter it is <clears throat> it's completely different right um you know virat kohli made that you know probably in half jest or in half serious he made that statement that if you live in india you support england and australia you better go and you know live there or support there uh, i'm not too sure whether virat meant it uh, seriously but that kind of a mindset has kind of become a norm in india off late right you live in india you have to support india i think the sport fandom has a little bit become too jingoistic and uh, the fan was between maybe india and pakistan even if you look at ashes i've never seen so much complaining about ashes from the indian fans like i see them you know every day someone saying oh ashes is between third and four why is it getting such a big hype india versus england is bigger india versus australia is bigger what they don't realize is it's not the quality of cricket that matters in ashes it's the cultural it's a historical it's a record it's a history from 1877 how they preserved chronicled how they written books how they've celebrated maybe india should develop that kind of a uh, you know rivalry with pakistan maybe or maybe with australia you know you you would need years and years to build that up so coming back to that so yes there is the indian cricket fan especially on twitter or especially on social media has become more and more outspoken they've started to challenge the narratives which used to be more of an anglo australian centric right now there there is there, there is a big push for a an indo centric narrative i think which is good i think with india being such a big powerhouse and generally so much wealth i, I think the indian fan needs to be heard at the same time i think the borderline thing is if someone supports the the country that plays india uh, in the sport i don't think those people should be ridiculed or humiliated on twitter or call names i know supporting new zealand or england is different pakistan has got a different thing i mean that's political when people support pakistan for a for a variety of reasons political societal or even you know grievances or it could be for a you know something just to prove a point you know that's a completely different i don't know uh, topic i don't want to divert it but i think yes there are more and more people who have become vocal there's more jingoism there's more uh, us versus them that's a bit sad to see but at the same time 
uh, that's still in minority, I would say, because majority of the fans are reasonable fans uh, who get on with the game and they support their country and they're very passionate. And again, the Indian fans are very much needed. These are the people who feed into the TV broadcasting money. They feed into those, you know, Twitter threads and stuff. So it's all about having the, you know, right, you know, a little bit of policing, a little bit of, um, you know, control and checks and balances. Otherwise, the Indian fandom, especially online, is super vital for the growth of the game. But there are some worrying elements which we need to look into as well. That's my summary, Sakib. No, that's uh, quite powerful. And I think you pretty much have given the roadmap of what's going to transpire here in the next hour. You covered a lot in your response. And I think I'm going to be fielding... Those were my questions. So let me bring Sharon for a brief intro here and then we'll uh, take this forward. So Sharon, uh, you are uh, the youngest of the lot, the four of us. Doesn't no age discrimination, but I think that means... I would think you're more modern with how the game at least is received. So in your fandom and what these two gentlemen have said, are there any... Uh, are there any points where it changed, where it evolved? You know, what you were first introduced to the game and how you are. Were there any defining points where your fandom, okay, this is how the game is viewed or was it conscious, subconscious, just, you know, share with us? Um, okay, so let me start with an incident here, Saki, because I think I was anyway going to do that and your question kind of allows me to do it. In 2015, uh, there was the India-Pakistan World Cup game. And I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was doing my PhD. Um, and uh, we had a bunch of Indians and Pakistanis watching the cricket game together. right? And this was a match in which kind of India just like crashed Pakistan. And it was so evident, to me at least, that uh, you know even my closest Pakistani friend, who was in the same PhD program as I was, who kind of thought as liberally as I did, he cared so much more deeply about the result of the game than I did. At some point, I wanted some more competition in the game than just it being a one-way street with India just kind of completely demolishing Pakistan. And I could see, on the other hand, that even for uh, this friend of mine, his name is Asad Liakad, even for Asad, um, he would have been happy if Pakistan had just thrashed India. I think thrashed India. And I think that there is a... Um, this, in, to my mind, gave me a sense of how my own fandom of cricket and of Indian cricket was evolving over time, that I no longer was a completely um, blind Indian fan in the, in the sense that I would support India uh, irrespective of what happens. I was slowly progressing towards someone who um, supported Indian cricket, who passionately watched Indian cricket, but at the heart of it, the cricket element of Indian cricket became more and more important. Um, let me give you another example. So in uh, 2017, I think I was in uh, Delhi and my brother um, and I decided on a whim uh, completely to go and watch Karnataka play railways at the Kanil Singh Stadium. So it was, uh, you know, in the middle of the day, we were looking at the scorecard and on online and we said, oh, wow, this looks like an interesting game. Mayank Agarwal is batting well. Uh, this was before Mayank was picked for India, I think. Uh, and he was on the fringes and we go there and it's completely empty. It's just like me, my brother... Uh, my sister-in-law uh, and and maybe five other people from the press and then the teams. That's it. There was nobody else there. It was beautiful. Mayank Agarwal was fantastic. The Those shots that the cuts through point and cover, the driving through extra cover is kind of imprinted in my mind even today. And uh, and I was I watched it because I was a fan of Indian cricket. I was also a fan of Karnataka cricket because I grew up in Karnataka, but I was a deeply passionate fan of Indian cricket. And so I was watching it. And yet... Even though I would do all of that, um, I would still say that today when, say, India is playing New Zealand and, you know, it's again a one-way street, 
I am almost finding myself backing New Zealand. I almost want New Zealand to kind of come back with a few wickets, uh, which is something that, uh, or, 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 you know, somebody scored a big knock, which is something that I would never have done even 15, 20 years ago. And that, I think, represents an evolution of my own fandom over the years. I want to kind of quickly finally end this by saying that I was reading uh, uh, The Commonwealth of Cricket by Ramchandra Guha uh, on my flight, actually, back from India to the US in November. And Ram Guha seems to have gone through uh, a somewhat of a similar transition over his own lifetime. And I was reading it, I found myself nodding vigorously to many of the things he was saying. He also rec- he also says, reckons that over time, he has become more of a cricket fan. Uh, there are aspects of Indian cricket that seem to bother him and that translates into how he views Indian cricket and how he views India when India plays. Um, and let me end by saying that I think the one difference between, say, someone like Ram Guha and me is even today... Um, if there was an India game and say a, a, a game featuring West Indies, I would watch the India game, right? I would always watch India first. So I'm still an Indian fan in the sense that I will watch India wherever India plays. If it's on TV, if it's on the stadium, I would watch Indian players wherever they play. However, the nuance here is I'm not always sure I'm supporting India. Um, and I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with that. That goes back to Vijay's comment about um, Virat Kohli's statement. I personally don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with not always supporting India, but still being a passionate follower of Indian cricket. Uh, those are quite the powerful words. So, Ayasab, I'll bring you in. Uh, you know, this was a very, very long introduction. You know, these guys are excited to share this space here. And I think a lot will come out in the next hour. So, uh, a loaded question for you, you know, uh, you know, with they say, with great power come great responsibility. So Indian cricket's rise, as you mentioned in Amit Verma's scene and the unseen, the Reliance 87 World Cup was pivotal, how they got the hosting rights and, you know, by reducing the number of overs because of daylight issues. So now, you know, uh, 34 years later, uh, you know, you must be approached by a lot of different people. So how has India's role at the table, you know, changed? Uh, was Reliance Cup the coming out party? Or was 93 series where the first series was on cable against England. And now we are here after IPL and Indian cricket is a superstar. So it's a big question. But, you know, have you noticed, because you are an insider you in the industry in a good way, because, you know, media people have access. You are the communicators. So how has the power structure changed? And uh, are there any flaws in there? Because we fans are very critical. Some fans and some fans say, no, Australia and England did it. Now it's India's turn. So what is the inside community's view on how this, you know, the, the shift has occurred and where we are at? I mean, look, there, these are two questions you asked, Sake. One is about the power structure within the game, the power matrix, how it has changed. The other is about fans, you know, and they may be at some places, they may overlap. On the other hand, they may not at all. Uh, you know, the fans may grow because the power structure becomes more robust or it may not. Uh, even so, for instance, just let me give you an example. Between 1983, which is when India won the World Cup and actually, you know, kind of became a, a, a global uh, power in, in sport because till then, at least in white ball or, or at least in limited overs cricket, India was not anything that anybody fancied. Uh, and if you take a country like Zimbabwe, now within Zimbabwe, the country itself, has their fan base grown? For cricket, or has it gravitated towards another sport? Like in many cases, it has happened in the West Indies. You know, the West Indies was such a, I mean, they've got the most amazing legacy in cricket. 
But since the decline of West Indies cricket, uh, starting from the mid 1990s, and then you know, right now I think there's been some sort of revival thanks to the IPL and T20 coming in, and players getting more opportunities to earn money, so they're they're playing the game again. But otherwise, young boys or young players in the Caribbean were moving away from cricket very drastically or very you know dramatically. They were not even getting opportunities to play county cricket in England. And therefore, they were looking at the U.S. for opportunities to get into sports scholarships or joining university and getting some livelihood, not focusing on cricket but on other sports, athletics, baseball, basketball, and so on. The thing is that in India's case, I think we all know where India stands today in the power matrix, right at the top. Uh, and the process, you can say, began since you know since india joined you know joined up with uh, what was then the imperial cricket conference but it gathered pace through the 60s more than the 50s certainly in the 70s but not at a you know not at an exponential rate the increase the the biggest thing about india then was it attracted big crowds but remember those were the days when teams would send the second 11 i mean there's so many england teams which came here uh, to to india and Sometimes the, the key players would be missing. Freddie Truman never toured India, you know, and they would come here and complain about Bombay Belly or Delhi Belly and so on. So it was almost like India was a country cousin and okay, if we feel like it, we'll go, but not otherwise. Things started changing from the 1983 World Cup. India winning the World Cup made a huge impact on the, you know, on the, on the uh, understanding of what cricket meant to Indians. Uh, and it, of course, within India itself, it just kind of skyrocketed upwards, the passion and the interest in the game. And especially with limited overs cricket coming in. And by 87, when the World Cup came here, India and Pakistan jointly, and that's the story in itself, how it was won uh, for the subcontinent. But imagine, now we talk about fans. Imagine an India, uh, an England-Australia final being played in the Eden Gardens and there are 90,000 people there. So, neither, it was not the home country playing there. But the passion for cricket was so strong that the entire stadium, the Eden Gardens, was packed to the gills. So, there are different kinds of fandom. I may be a, you know, I'm, as an Indian team, you know, writing in Indian newspapers, my job is to write about how the Indian team performs. Obviously, I'm very interested in what the Indian players are doing, how the administration is doing, and so on. But I may have a player who's not an Indian who is my favorite. You know, Vijay mentioned, I think, about uh, Viv Richards. You know, I mean, who didn't like Viv Richards? And the minute you went to the ground, you certainly didn't want him to get out for 10 or 20. You wanted him to play a big enough knock so you could savor his genius. So that's also a kind of fandom which supersedes your, you know, your nationalistic tendencies, so to speak. Uh, I still want to see a great contest between bat and ball. I want to see a great contest uh, with, between Viv Richards and Kapil Dev. Uh, I would like Kapil Dev to get his wicket, but I would also like Viv Richards to score, you know, play those strokes which make him such a great player. And also, look, fandom for cricket spreads beyond just your team. I wake up every morning and watch the Ashes. You know, I had high hopes that England would make a, a fist of this first match at Brisbane. It didn't happen. But the the period in which Joe Root and David Malan were putting up that stirring partnership, you know, it just kept me so engaged. And I said, wow, I mean, you know, I haven't seen 
anybody bat like Joe Root this year. He's been absolutely masterful. Does he, you know, evoke in me a fan? Most certainly he does. I want him to succeed because he's in the form of his life and he's batting like a dream. And when somebody's playing like that, you want to see more and more of him. So that's the fandom part of it. Where India becoming a power center is, many things came into place. You know, as, as when you look back, uh, 83 World Cup win, before that 71, the twin victories. The money part came in later. The fandom started increasing. The number of people engaged in the game and savoring cricket started growing exponentially. I think even from 70-71, the advent of television, even when it was Doordarshan, but certainly after cable TV came in, 93. But, you know, a lot of things happened around that 8-10 year period between 83 World Cup win, or maybe a dozen years, and 95-96, the next World Cup which was played in India uh, after 87, which was between jointly hosted by India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. Uh, so, uh, what happened was economic liberalization took place in 1991, 1990, 1991. And by 1995, 1996, you had cable TV penetration massively in India. Even if it meant one community set being watched by 200 people in a village, but the quality of the, the forecast and the distances that could be covered. When I say distances that could be covered is, even if India is touring the West Indies, you could watch the game, which you couldn't do earlier. You had to rely only on the radio and at odd hours in the night. So that had a, you know, it, it, the, the interest and passion in cricket just exploded. It reached every nook and corner of the country. And that's the reason why you find cricketers coming from every part of India now. It's not five or six major centers. But simultaneously, what happened is, seeing the number of eyeballs, so to speak, you know, on, on for the sport, the money started following the, the, the fandom or the spectatorship or the viewership. So more and more money started to come into Indian cricket. And that's where Indian cricket got its muscle. Where earlier, English, English teams and players... Uh, Australian players would cock a snook at touring India. Now, they are clamoring to come here. They'll give an arm and a leg to be part of the IPL. If not as players, then as sports medicine experts, as coaches, as, you know, just about everything. And it's the same country. It's just that the, the profile has changed. Obviously, the country has changed in many ways. You know, the standard of living has gone up. The infrastructure is much better, etc. Et there are more opportunities. So, India today supports... 90%, uh, not 90%, I beg your pardon, 70 to 75% of the spectatorship or the eyeballs and therefore also brings in about 70 to 75% of the revenue into the game. You take India out of the equation, actually cricket becomes a very impoverished sport, which is, you know, only England and Australia might make some money, but the others would, would kind of, I think, fizzle out for lack of uh, nutrition uh, of dollars. You know, it's, it's just... So obvious now that without India, cricket doesn't have a leg to stand on. If you see even a spark of revival happening in West Indies cricket, and I'm not saying it's happened in Test cricket, unfortunately, to my utter regret, but at least there are more players coming in and are interested in playing the game and the Caribbean nations, which are independent nations and play only cricket as one team, they are beginning to understand what it means to resurrect the game. What they need to do. Otherwise, they had no clue about administration, about infrastructure, about nurturing talent. 
you know it, it was also i mean the, the talent was obviously there and is still perhaps there and you know it's natural abundant talent but the minute the the you know taking care of was not good enough and the world became a global society west indies cricket collapsed so badly and we are we are finding that now in south africa you know after the and it depends on the political policies the economic policies of independent of those individual countries but the point is that india today is in in the vanguard of the sport and that therefore when you ask me what should india do i think if you are in the vanguard then the onus is on you to not just look after your bank balance but also support the growth of the sport so that it is sustainable or can be sustained over the next 70 50 100 years because otherwise you i mean conceivably you can play like you know the the in the us you can play the world series baseball for donkeys years for decades and only the american teams played amongst themselves and they called it a world series so you can do that in india but you cannot make the sport grow unless you take it take it elsewhere so for instance let me put it in slightly more lay terms can we support afghanistan cricket enough as as an indian team india has made that gesture they made uttarakhand dehradun the home team the home venue for afghanistan when they started playing you know test cricket and the test match played against india they got some afghan players coming in can we support ireland similarly in some way can we have between now what has happened because the most lucrative matches are india versus australia india versus england can we also pump up matches between india and sri lanka india and new zealand is becoming engaging now because of the quality of the competition unfortunately india versus pakistan has become uh, uh, you know has, has been a, a casualty in the in the political relationships game uh, and india pakistan cricket relations has is a fantastic story in itself with so many ups and downs it has helped improve relations it has also destroyed relations so i'm not talking of Indo- which which actually to my mind is actually more powerful today uh, than the ashes contest ashes has a longer legacy but in terms of just total viewership available for indo indo pak cricket i'll just give you a little idea of what it means i went for the 2019 world cup to cover the the, the tournament in england and for that indo pak match at old trafford the, the old trafford you know redon stadium has a seating capacity for journalists for about 80 journalists or 90 journalists they had to create an extra create an extra stand so to, so to speak of 50 60 more seats so that 140 150 journalists from these two countries could be accommodated and not just from these two countries the journalists from all countries from all cricket playing countries were present at that match to understand what is it that drives this passion so that's the flavor of indo pak cricket but that apart what i'm saying is that india needs to take the onus the custody of spreading the gospel of cricket further and making it stronger uh, by all means it should look after its you know uh, monetary and financial interests of course and remember uh, at the end of the day there, there's no altruism you can't say okay we'll just not bother about money and do everything else uh, you know you might find that you don't have then the power and some other country might have it i mean when england was calling or mcc was calling the shots they were 
pretty ruthless about how they you know plan their itineraries who they play with played with etc so to the australian cricket board when it became big enough but not as big as england today india is in a happy position that you know it's is the predominant force in 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 the sport and therefore with that comes a little responsibility i think uh, it should how do i put it as i mentioned once to you sakib when we discussed tiger patodi in one of the things that one of the lines he spoke well, it was a session when i moderated at the rasing dungarpur memorial lecture some decade back he says that you know a words to that effect that instead of becoming the voice of cricket the, the bcc has become the invoice of cricket mm-hmm. now i think that kind of you know imbalance needs to be addressed and therefore i think that the owners the responsibility is so much on india it's raised india has raised the sport to this level now to raise it further or at least sustain it at this level is india's responsibility no well sir before i bring vijay in looks like sharan has raised his <laughs> hand so sharan the floor is yours um thanks so much akib uh, i just had a quick question for uh, aya saab actually um you kind of covered cricket for the last 3 uh, 4 decades and i listen to you talk i'm just amazed by how many things you can pull out from say 2019 all the way back to the 80s i'm just curious that for someone who's followed the sport so carefully for so long where does the uh, the the journalist stop and the fan begin and in other words um how can you keep your fandom for the sport alive in the presence of in the when you know the sport so deeply from the inside is it really hard or or can you kind of separate the two how does that work yeah i mean look it's it's a it's an interesting very interesting question as i mentioned to sakib earlier when we started that you start off as a fan i mean you become a journalist later in life uh you know and there are diff- see there is no one stereotype of a fan there are fans and there are fans like you mentioned that you might go you might you you know you want to see indo in, in matches by indian the indian team features but you might not necessarily support the indian team you might support some other player you might want to actually support ab de villiers who you think is a magnificent batsman even if he's playing against india when i say support i mean you want to see him bat uh, or you know you may want to see an imran khan bowl that bowl devastatingly even if he is in pakistan is playing england or australia you'll say no i want he may be from pakistan but you'll say wow what a great cricketer i want to see him bowl and i want to see him bowl well so fandom is you know in my case i would say i'm a fan of cricket i'm a lover of cricket and it also became a, a vocation for me that is a, a process of life you know and and is something that uh, it happened and when once it happened i have been able to or i have had the challenge has been to treat the vocation or the profession also seriously enough so i must not at the cost of i am a great viv richards fan so in 1989 when india went to the west indies and we got trashed in the series there viv richards was captain i remember and uh, uh, we were jamaica the last test match of the series and he hit 100 he, he was struggling for runs before that and he hit 100 which was great to watch and then he was he was dismissed uh, i think caught behind or stumped by more i'm not exactly sure till more and then he kind of protested at the decision you know visibly demonstratively demonstrably and it made the crowd go wild wild with anger so they started pelting debris onto the ground now i'm a great vivrichards fan but that was something which i didn't appreciate you know as somebody who had played and he was nearing the end of his career he was this is 1989 who seen 
everything that has that has to be seen in the, in the game for him to have lost his school at that point in time as captain and uh, you know cause, cause that it, it play came to a halt and then it was resumed after about half an hour 45 minutes when he came out of the dressing room of course he had to go back after he was given out came out and pacified the crowd now there is a conflict you know from my my journalistic inclination would be i have to be critical of the man though he's made a 100 so i'll praise his 100 as a journalist but i'll also write that what he did post that 100 or post getting dismissed was just not acceptable so you have to balance that too. i mean look and and then there's also the authority indian cricket I me mean, recently we've had virat kohli being uh, you know changed removed as as odi captain and rohit sharma has become the captain and deservingly so i mean i'm not going into the the choice is not the issue but the way the bcci put out the the change you know in the press release of which i am a recipient the press release was about the squad chosen for australia for south africa one last para is about you know uh, rohit sharma is will will be the odi captain and also will be the vice captain for the test series for for test cricket uh, with virat kohli as captain now if you removed virat kohli he was one of the biggest influencers in the sport over the last decade he's been a champion cricketer you may or may not he's a polarizing figure but no word of thanks not a word of thanks for somebody who's who's got the best record as a batsman and as a captain from india in odi cricket you know he had given up t20 cricket it's logical to give the white ball captaincy to somebody else but for the bcci to not acknowledge and a day later to wake up because they got they you know they got bombarded uh, i also tweeted about it i thought it was rank bad uh, rank poor form by the bcci and remember the same player has been pumped up by the bcci over the past past 5 years you know as the face of indian cricket and when whatever your current state of disenchantment you cannot cannot run down or dilute his contribution to indian cricket i don't think that is on you might take a decision you can put it down you can say you know virat did extremely well for us we think it's a time for change that's it what does it cost you so i i think that you know uh, that's the journalist in me that's also i think uh, you know there is a need for sensitivity where administration is concerned which the bcci does didn't show and therefore these are issues that have to be addressed uh, i may or may not be a fan of virat kohli but i'm certainly a fan uh, I, i certainly would demand a, a a more more sensible protocol from the administration in dealing with such matters you don't need an hr manager for this for god's sake you know this is you know at the end of the day you're not controlling players lives you're running the game you're not this is not a feudal setup that you can do what you want with players you know uh, i can understand if a player has brought the game into disrepute or has been guilty of some major controversy which is you know which has become so unpalatable but that was hardly the case you want to make a change you do it decently what does decency cost you that was my question of the of the bcci so i'm saying from a you may be a fan of cricket you may be a fan of a player but there are also as a professional journalist i draw my own limits whether it's a player or the administration because bcci is an indian sports body and i am an indian and i am an indian journalist it doesn't mean that everything is flawless and if it is not then it has to be highlighted
Absolutely. No, powerful words, meaningful words, Ayasab. And, you know, I would just like to say one thing before I bring Vijay in. You know, communication has never been BCCI's strength. And, you know, this whole episode, I think that could be, you know, of, of Kohli and to Sharma, the way they uh, communicated. Yeah, this, this, this could, you know, this could be a series of episodes. And, you know, we can all uh, go back to events, how communication hasn't been their strength. You know, Siddharth Monga was on the podcast, told on the podcast, that they have arrived at this position of power by mere accident. You know, sometimes they take things for granted. But anyway, so we have like uh, close to 34 minutes left and that will be spent on media uh, and Twitter. But before that, I'll give an opportunity to Vijay, who hasn't spoken in a while, if he has anything to respond to what's been said. So Vijay, the floor is yours. Um, thanks, Akib. I, I think pretty much I agree with most of the things that Tayas has mentioned in terms of... Uh, when you have more power, I mean, it has got, you have to have more responsibility and how you make the world more equitable, you know, distribution of the wealth. BCC has done a fantastic job of, you know, generating wealth, which is massive, right? Because the game was almost not making money, right? When they moved away from reciprocal tours uh, to the, you know, FTP, uh, the TV deal. So BCCI, uh, not just for international cricket for uh, around India, they have also done for IPL and they've made more people uh, richer and more people are playing. That's all good. But I got a couple of points on BCCI because what they have to do is sometimes, I mean, right now they're too much worried about what the Supreme Court says, uh, the conflict of interest, an interim committee, age limit. I think BCCI has to uh, fix this house in order and start to become a true world leader. When I say true world leader, most of the innovations in cricket have come from Australia and England, whether it's a kookaburra ball, whether it's a different kind of, you know, um, you know, drop-in wickets, uh, you know, the different kind of um, the evolution of uh, innovations have happened uh, from those two countries, you know, better TV coverage, et cetera, et cetera. I think the time has come for BCCI to be a true leader in solving some of the problems due, right? The due, whether it's in UAE or India or Pakistan, Sri Lanka, that massively affects the game. Uh, whether it's a T20, what's a one-day game, or even a, a test match, right? Uh, so what I want to say is BCCA has to partner with either a university or any, any in a corporate entity. Entity They got money, right? They need to come, come up with a sustainable model of how to lessen the problem so that the games uh, are not won based on a toss, right? Whether it's a World Cup or an IPL game, because it's more of a problem in you know, uh, the subcontinent. Also, the other things fix the ball, right? Um, we have a pink ball, we've got a red ball, but it's very sad to see uh, when the, the floodlights are on, test match cricket at five o'clock, people have to leave because of the rules, right? The liability clauses have to change. Of course, you know, nobody wants anyone to get killed on the field. Nobody wants uh, any injury to happen to someone. But uh, I think right now the rules, the umpires and ICC, they're all bound by the liability clauses because if you don't have a side screen, if you feel that uh, a square leg, the ball might come and hit you because they don't have the helmet, the umpires might be there. So all those things are there. Uh, so, But BCCA has to be a true leader in terms of you know, fixing those problems. So the test matches, when I mean, people are paying money to watch 90 overs being bowled on that day, they get bowled unless if it rains, it's okay, right? That's a, a nature. But when the lights are on and fix the ball, uh, see some of these global initiatives, right? Uh, BCCA has to be a true leader rather than being distracted by, you know, what happens with the Supreme Court and uh, trying to, you know, play the brinkmanship uh, within the country. I think that's something I would really like to look at. And I touched upon uh, Afghanistan getting the Dehradun treatment, which is great. Uh, but again, um, expecting BCCI to fund more for others 
it's like you know you can't ask the premier league which is a very rich league to support a smaller european nation so we have to be careful in terms of what we expect uh, bcca with the money because of course they are there to uh, make money and make profit but definitely some of the global problems which are plaguing cricket uh, which is making the game you know uh, almost untenable uh, sometimes those things have to be fixed by bcci that's my high level summary sakib to complement to what i has just said so i think i has sir has a response yeah no i i actually wanted to add you know uh, that look it's not black or white you know there are shades of gray there are various things that the bcci has done which have been wonderful for instance the fact of spreading the gospel of cricket across the length and breadth of the country is has been it's been a phenomenal uh, you know work undertaken and successfully uh, so for instance now there are hub and spoke models for you know penetrating deep into the hinterland of the country spotting talent and getting them into the spotlight you know uh, into the major centers where they have better facilities and therefore now with the talent scouts for the ipl moving around there are going to be 10 teams more opportunities It also means more competition uh between players but that's healthy because that raises the level of the game so it's not that you know the 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 money that has been earned has not been spent well of course it has i think what i am trying to say is that whatever has been done is great what can be done further is really the issue and now that india has become the leading uh you know cricketing power or the preeminent cricketing power there are certain things that the indian cricket board or the establishment needs to do to ensure that you know uh, the sport grows from here so let me again give you an example from nba uh you know the nba has made a, because you have saturated exhausted the market in in the us in the country of its origin so now they want they they trying to develop the sport elsewhere other markets maybe for profit motive that's fine china india i mean and there is long term play for basketball that the nba is doing in india they are going right to the grassroots level to raise basketballers for the future who may end up playing in the nba or nba some chapter may come to india provided there is enough interest i'm saying the effort is being made to pollinate you know another country with that sport and hope that something will grow from there that is the kind of support i'm i was talking about when you know afghanistan now i don't expect india to play 10 matches against afghanistan and only two against england and two against australia obviously that's not going to happen because you have to look at uh, your own fans you have to look at uh, you know the financial implications of doing that but yes if you if if you set a target for example of saying you know we are the biggest boys the big boys in this uh, bcci in the, in the icc and let's look at a scenario 25 years or 26 30 years from now where we can have 24 teams cricket teams in the olympics is that possible you know what there are more than 100 countries which technically play cricket they are not part of the icc's main uh, teams you know they all subsidiary teams and associate members and etc etc but with support they could end up becoming competitive not now not in a year not in four years not in 10 years but maybe in 20 years a generational or two generations will have to be kind of steeped in that sport to emerge with players that can compete you know i mean india 
or the subcontinent was the bastion for hockey for more than half a century uh, you know from the olympics from the 20 1928 for about till till about 1980 or even 84 uh, and what's happened since then once the other countries took to it more seriously astro turf came they they provided the improvisation with vijay talks uh, mentioned earlier that india is not in the they're not showing the improvisational skill i mean indians this is a particular or a peculiar malaise huh, which i can find and Sharan might share this, uh, might agree with me, or maybe he'll contest it. But Indians who are so moribund in terms of invention, improvisations in their own country become our masters at it when they're in a, in a country like the US. You know, almost all the major technology companies, IT companies in the world and social media behemoths are being headed by Indians. There is a certain innovative quality in the Indian mind the trainings that they've received, which is adding so much luster to the companies that they had and to the country from where these companies are originating. Why can't we, in, you know, I mean, is, this is very interesting that the first T20 World Cup was played in 2007, which India incidentally won. Do you know that India was the last country to agree to play that tournament? You know, it, it was almost as an afterthought and you found that all the major players who were there, the big dads, didn't go to that tournament. MS Dhoni left, led a pretty young and, you know, there was no Tendulkar, no David, no Lakshman, no Zahir Khan, you know. And, and then after that, because India won, T20 just took off. And the, the market, that you know, the, the, the money that comes from the IPL can support, you know, cricket all over the world in a very healthy manner. What I'm saying is that India must accept and appreciate its own predominant or preeminent or dominant position and build from there, not just, of course, you look after your finances, but also build a massive, a far better ecosystem for the sport uh, going ahead so that even in, you know, uh, 2030 to, to 2070, 2080, whenever, uh, you know, uh, people look back and say, hey, you know, this is the sport. Where, where did cricket come from? Because the colonial power spread it across the colonies. Otherwise, it's not a game invent. I mean, there's a classic line that cricket is an Indian game invented by the English, but that's because of passion. Why did all the sports or most of the sports originate in England? Football, hockey, lawn tennis, cricket. And it was a very vibrant society, which, you know, post, post or the Renaissance, post-Renaissance society, which and a lot of things happened. Uh, the steam engine and you know I, I don't want to get into all of that what i'm saying is that if there is a larger vision then a lot more things can be accomplished no i think well said you know the the leadership uh, is evident and sometimes it's been reluctance but i think you shared some valuable insights so i want to cover the other two topics quickly and give everyone at least a chance on it so i'll I'll start with you, Aya Saab, and let's talk about media. And mostly let's focus on commentary right now, because on Twitter, I don't know if you pay attention, there's a big divide on what Vaughn says or what Sunil Gavaskar says. And then there are some analysts like the Ricky Pontings of the world who, you know, who are seen as like, okay, they are taking the game forward. So my question is a broader question. Uh, look, uh, cricket is entertainment for most people. You know, they are like a learned niche, like some fans who are analytical, who are superior with data and numbers, then there are people like myself, hobbyists, who can afford to do a podcast and, you know, learn through that medium. But we are all tuning into the match. And then it happens across all sports. I noticed tennis is the other one where the renowned voices sometimes are not adding to what they, something new. 
and the fans have become more hungry and more knowledgeable but that's a very small section of fans so what is your take on this when you hear this i don't know if you you know this happens in your echo chambers that sunil gavaskar or the practitioners even if we don't take any names uh, should be using more data to enhance the knowledge of the listener but then the counter argument is is everyone able to comprehend what the data presents are we trying to make the listening experience more complicated just for say the elite listeners who again could be in india could be in millions so the floor is yours and then i'll probably bring uh, the other two gentlemen with the same vantage points yeah so i look i think it's a it's a very you know interesting question but also a complex one I, what i would say is that where the media space is concerned with the advent of social media and you know technological innovations as i mentioned earlier everybody is a journalist everybody has an opinion and can express it in the old days you had no avenue to express an opinion you went there to the ground as a fan or as an analyst and you just watched the game discussed it amongst your friends maybe got into very heated arguments uh, next day read the newspapers if you agreed with the point of view with of a cricket writer or rajan bala or an armohan writing in the hindu or you know kn prabhu writing in the times of india or ron hendricks writing in the indian express then you said hey yeah you know i think i i think what he says is right or no i disagree with him uh, and over a period of time you decided to ally with the writer or not today you have no such compunctions uh, you know and in the earlier days i must tell you that vijay might agree with me uh, in especially in true of chepok and madras that the most knowledgeable fans and i think it was true all over the country the most knowledgeable fans didn't sit in the pavilion or in the most priced high priced ticket stands they sat in the east stand and they sat in the north stand and they were the more avid the more uh, you know earnest followers of the game who gobbled up everything that was written or said or spoken about the game and then built up their opinions and they exchanged their notes and and stuff like that today social media gives you a platform to vent to appreciate to disagree to abuse and it's all uncontrolled so it's become cacophonous you know there's a cacophony and opinions can be very polarizing can be very complementary can be very diverse i personally feel and in the digital space itself has just invited so many people to write in the game the opportunity to write you can have your own blog blog post you don't even need a a website to write for you can write your own piece and invite readers to come and share their experience you can do a you know a show on youtube of your own and over a period of time you may build a build an audience for yourself and get paid for it so all these things are there which have come up i think overall it has enriched the the, the media in a in a general sense in a broader sense because there are more voices but obviously it is more difficult to pick and choose what you want if you are if you are interested in reading or getting more uh, you know sensible points of view you have to navigate you have to learn how to navigate uh, through the social media you know uh, the mountainous pile of uh, opinions that are it's studied with uh, and that's the challenge you know and i think that you cannot now say that whether people should keep quiet when they have watched the match or have an opinion on on a, on an event uh, because like a virat kohli and rohit sharma captaincy issue uh, it started with polarized opinion and that's the nature of you know sporting debate has always been like that is greg is who was the best batsman of the 1980s was it sunil gavaskar viv richards greg chapel or javed miyadad 
and you can have a discussion till kingdom come and there'll be no conclusion and it can get very heated and it can get very bitter but you know it was limited to a handful of people or a room full of people now is the whole universe at large which gets engaged so sometimes you get overwhelmed you know you tweet something and you, you the response you get can be so hostile and you wonder hey hey what have i said that is it's you know become so nasty or you write something absolutely silly and you'll get wow wow and accolade for it and you'll say you'll ask yourself what did i say i mean this was just said in fun <laughs> and look at it's gone viral uh, but the, the bit about data analytics i think is a significant aspect of where the world is headed i think the generations that are coming up and growing into data data driven thinking you know is is something that is gathering ground and currency it's only because it's easier for this generation to understand data than flowery prose you know they may not be impressed by purple prose or some great technical analysis they'll say show me the data even if it's a guy like gavaskar who's played 125 tests they'll say but where is the data to support it so this can happen you know if it answers your question no that's very well put i think in twitter again like i say it's a global living room first the discussions were happening with friends in a neighborhood tea corner or someone's house but now you know you open your mouth you know the world is listening so sharan you have a question and then i'll bring vijay quickly in yeah so um, i just wanted to say a couple of things about social media and i had a question actually for vijay but um, sakib you can also lead with your question uh, on social media i feel like it's it's amazing like i have said it's democratized and you have said sakib it's democratized information is democratized platforms anyone uh, can now say something and they can be heard by uh, everybody uh, or at least their followers and that kind of makes uh, diversity of opinions possible which is also cause some kind of cacophony because it's not just democratized information access and platforms it's also democratized at the same time misinformation right so you can ex- say exactly the opposite of what is true and you can say it enough times and you can have enough followers who repeat it and suddenly now you're in a world where you don't know what the truth is and there's a lot of back and forth and cacophony so that's one broad point i think and that affects how we see cricket too i feel like we are now much more partisan than we used to be and that's partly because uh, you know there is this everybody shouting and clamoring at the same time but i think the from a fandom and from a bcci perspective the more interesting aspects of social media is that social media also allows the really powerful people in this instance the bcci to kind of have a direct regular one way stream of information that they can put out at their will without having to rely on the traditional media sources right so previously if the bcci wanted to say something maybe they can send out a press release newspapers and a newspaper wanted to carry it, they would carry it but otherwise they wouldn't but now the bcci doesn't really require journalists and newspapers they just they're they're very happy to just put out things uh, not give out press conferences uh, and just kind of have one way streets going out one way and that again is another consequence of the social media and so i think that that's something that hasn't been uh, uh, thought of as much as that social media not only empowers the weak it also empowers the powerful by completely allowing them to circumvent the media i'd be very interested to see if ir sir agrees if he feels that this is partly true or not and with vijay i i was thinking about you know i follow his tweets uh, he tweets a lot and he interacts a lot with people on social media um sometimes i wonder if uh, you know if you constantly get feedback for what you're saying and that feedback is instant and you're talking so much and you're putting out so much data and facts and analysis and you're constantly getting feedback if that affects Uh, or changes how you see things in a way that would that is much more profound than say i put something out 
and then it comes back to me a week later right like i get a few responses a collated a week later i wonder how as a, as someone who engages so deeply on a daily basis that affects how you think so these are my two questions um maybe i can go first uh, sakib or uh, do you want uh, no no please go first no no vijay please i've been i've had my say okay so i'll just first start with what ayas said and then i'll come to uh, the question from sharan right so ayas is right right the cricket commentary right uh, to sakib's broader question has evolved right we had the tony cozies john allards christopher martin jenkins mm-hmm. norman may of abc so these were the non cricket playing experts right these were the the summarizers they they as uh, i has talked about the purple pros uh, brilliant words or even like you know someone like um, <clears throat> henry blofeld right talking about the uh, the london landscape the double decker buses etc etc so cricket was always a sport which was somehow it was created invented for the radio commentary right the it was all about the narrative storytelling you need 8 to 7 hours to be filled up by you know rain breaks and stuff so it was all about lot of words the tv came along then the former players who weren't the most articulate people or who didn't have the best of the pros they started to fill up thanks to mainly due to the kerry packer uh, in in australia in 77 right channel 9 so the former players started to become the experts as well as the summarizers and they created their own aura now then the cable tv meant uh, satellite tv meant a lot of foreign players started to come to india which meant to iss earlier point which i also made people in remote far flung areas were able to get the knowledge of the technical aspects of the game much better so if you look at it we started to move away from these great summarizers and experts or uh, or uh, good uh, you know articulators of the game to former players you know hogging the limelight that means there was a bit of a disruption now we got a digital social media as i talked about you know there are fantasy league players or experts that that number crunches I think the whole thing is even numbers are very important. I always believe whatever you say your conventional wisdom or you know what you call it is common sense has to be backed by data and evidence. That's why if you look at the coverage from Sky Cricket especially in the UK, Crickwiz which is a fantastic database with a lot of information, they've started to put those statistics, you know, saying courtesy of Crickwiz, which is really helpful to augment some of the points. But uh, I think the challenge I mean to 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 Sharan's point um Sharan, to your point, yes, it can be a little bit difficult because social media is a very powerful tool in terms of in terms of giving the feedback immediately. I think sometimes it's good to get the feedback immediately, right? It makes sense. You put something out, but what is becoming a problem is the abuse, right? Especially if you're a woman, right? Like I'll give a couple of examples. I posted something around Virat Kohli, and you know the, the famous, you know, his hands were tied, and he had posted something about exhaustion. I mean, more, not exhaustion. It's more like uh, his his fatigue about the buyer bubbles. And I thought I took that and cuted and you know said something like, "Is that the most sensitive thing to say?" I asked a question, and so that the Mukherjee, who's a former sports journalist, good friend of mine, we were you know we discussed a fair bit on Twitter. She happened to kind of endorse or support my views and said something similar. gosh it kind of opened such a what do we say a torrent of abuse i got abuse as a male typical abuse but as a woman she got unbelievably wild wild abuse and you know some of the things that you wouldn't say that to anybody so to me that's problematic and that happens to a lot of women like ias uh, i'm sure he gets a lot of criticism but he's still a male there are a lot of young women journalists cricket journalists from india when they post something it's a joke sara waris uh, who's the visiting india 
uh, cricket journalist. She happened to post a joke on MS Dhoni when he was appointed as a mentor to the team. She had to literally deactivate the account and go away because the views are so constant. Then when the players don't perform, their wives and their girlfriends, you know, it happened with Jamieson. Uh, it happened with, uh, you know, a couple of other players. Uh, you know, when they are given the rape threats, when they're given, you know, abuses, which is unprintable, then it becomes a problem. I think whether you're a journalist or a, a player, targeting players, family, or a woman journalist or a male journalist as well, for having an opinion which is which is contrarian or um, which is diametrically opposite to what the fans want to see, that I got a big problem. So that has to be really, really, you know, control. And this happens through unnamed bots as well as people uh, who are putting their names out and there is no fear. I think this is a broader problem in terms of how social media has to uh, control and take ownership of these, you know, trolls. Uh, to come back to the other point about in you know, a someone like Ayaz and to your question as well, uh, uh, Sharon, about how do people react? Like people all want praise. Everybody wants, okay, you've done a good job. Uh, you know, word of praise will be helpful because someone has put in a lot of effort to write a 2,500 page article and the editor says, you know, reduce it to 1,000. So people have put in a lot of hours to put an article out and it's very easy for somebody to pick three holes in that, Right. I think what people have to get better is, okay, po- say something positive, And then, you know, if there are comments, if there are, you know, data points missing, you can, uh, you can give a view on that. But somehow people have started to become a little too negative. It's just that the negatives, like they just pick on it. They'll just go bang, bang, bang. And then, you know, there's a, a troll army follows if it's about a Rohit Sharma or a Virat Kohli or even a Sachin Tendulkar or an MS Dhoni. I think that's where we got a problem, especially in the Indian fandom, because, um, the Indian fans are very, very passionate about the individual superstars and how their image is portrayed, right? And I think when that happens, I'm sure the journalists will find it a bit hard because that's something they're not used to with the R. Mohans and the Ayaz Mehmans and the, the Vijay Lokapalis and the uh, Suresh Mehmans of the world. When they wrote pieces in the 80s, uh, there could be only a letters to the editor, which could which would take probably a week for them to publish. And they had control of what to publish and what not to publish. So even an error would be fixed only a couple of days later. So that feedback mechanism being immediate has changed the game. In a way, it's good because in a way, it's good because journalists are on the toes because as it should be, they should be held accountable. And also it allows them to interact more with fans and it also allows the fans to interact with them. But as long as we cut down the abuse, slander, vile nature of, you know, comments, I'm okay with the whole thing because I've seen, for example, I would never get, I would have never been invited to a podcast without the social media. Who would know who Vijay Aramugam was? Like, because social media allowed me to come and I interact with a few journalists, a few even former players, some of them follow me, not because I know a lot, but it's just that, you know, it allows people to interact. So to me, I'm a big fan of the social media, how it has given a level playing field for journalists to uh, get better maybe to pick a few cues from uh, fans who are very passionate, they know their game. At the same time, allowing this interaction also opens up a complete uh, new paradigm. The only problem is how do you stop the abuse, especially against women? I think that's a big area of concern. That's a broader conversation. I don't know if I've answered your question, Sharon. Oh, yes, you have. So uh, can I can I sure. jump in here? Uh, Absolutely. You know, just, just to take that point, I think very well made point by Vijay. So, Look, social media is not a uh, it's not a pitfall in 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 the in the concept sense, you know, in the conceptual sense. Uh, it just opened up vistas to a world 
which every journalist and every writer would crave for. For instance, if I write for a newspaper, it's got geographical limitations, apart from space, space limitations and geographical limitations. Now on the digital platform, I can be accessed, you know, by Vijay in Australia, by Sharan, the US, and you sitting in the US, Akib. So, which earlier, if I was writing for Sports Week or Midday or DNA or Times of India, you wouldn't be able to see unless somebody sent you a cutting or a picture of that. Uh, so that's obviously uh, the big advantage. But it does come with, you know, the strings attached. And one of the things which we've been talking about, so let's understand one thing. There are trolls. Their job is to create a nuisance, you know. They are also driven by their own passion of creating a nuisance. And as uh, Vijay mentioned, they've taken up at least where sports is concerned, but this is endemic. This goes, I mean, look at what's happening in politics or in terms of in the celeb world, in the entertainment world, you know, there are, I mean, they create their own loyalties and therefore their own rivalries. And it may be rivalries with players from other teams or people from other teams and other countries or within the same team. So you will find that there are Virat Kohli loyalists fighting against Rohit Sharma loyalists or MS Dhoni loyalists or what have you. While these three guys or four guys are playing for the same team, you know, it's not an Indian player versus a Pakistan player. That also happens, but even otherwise. So that's the nature of the beast, that it just allows the space, the opportunity and the, the immediacy of posting something and getting it out into the big, bad, big, 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 wide world where people can consume it. The thing about uh, you know, you asked at the start about media, the how it's evolved is that, and uh, Vijay mentioned about the response you would get maybe after a week. I mean, if I used to work, I started my career in a weekly magazine, Sports Week. So the periodicity was a week. Once the magazine was out in the in the in the stands or in in the public, it would take five, six, seven, maybe eight days for responses to come for the article, and maybe a week later it will be published again as a letter to the editor. In daily newspapers, you have a daily section on readers writing into the editor. And now you've got, uh, you know, this is in real time. If I'm watching a match, I've made boo-boos while I'm tweeting, you know. I've, maybe sometimes I've got a figure wrong or a fact wrong because or there's a typo uh, which I couldn't, couldn't control. You know, sometimes there's a, when you're doing it on your cell phone, you can make a mistake. And you'll get a, you know, you'll... you'll uh, There'll be an avalanche of criticism against you and unsparing and unsparing. So I think that's something that one has to live with. I think that you have to be able in your own mind or in your own way, work out a system where you identify the genuine fans who may have grievances against those who are bots and who are trolls who will abuse and ridicule and, you know, threaten for no rhyme or reason. So, that's the, uh, you know, you can either choose to ignore them or block them or whatever. But the real trick is don't get upset by them. No, I think uh, very well said. So I, I will give an ounce of opinion. Usually I don't do on my podcast. I think I'm in agreement with Sharon's question and both Vijay and Ayasab's answer. But I think my point is, it's just like anything, right? With the internet and now with the social media, this innovation has a price. Like I would have never known uh, an Ayaz Memon, right? You know, I was introduced through, you know, a friend of mine who knew Prem Panikkar. And, you know, that's the cycle goes on. And secondly, I would have never known uh, Vijay Arumagam. You know, we wouldn't be doing this podcast. And the flip side is, you know, 
does Sarah Varish or any other uh, female journalist deserve the abuse? Absolutely not. But this is the problem, right? When you have this kind of a great innovation, it goes into all sort of hands. And I'm not even trying to, you know, immature hands, bad hands, and then the trolls. So I think that's that's a reality. So, Asav, I know you are almost pressed for time. So let me just ask you one thing. And this is not about, you know, the this is more about the disruption of the independent voices like the podcasters, the YouTubers, the bloggers. So... Even Sharda, when she was Sharda Ugra, when she was on the podcast, she says she's not on social media, but she asks her friend to, you know, uh, promote her articles. So this direct feedback mechanism that Vijay mentioned, are the independent voicing, voices sharpening you and your fraternity's toolkits? You say, okay, wow, you know, this guy does it part-time, but he has a point or she has a point. How do you, you know, silently absorb, you know, some of the feedback or some of the knowledge that's thrown out there? Because there's a lot of knowledge, but of course, a lot doesn't mean it's all quality. So how do you operate in that space? And how does the, how does the fraternity has, you know, accepted this new, you know, mode of operations where, you know, uh, hobbyists like myself, you know, you're nice to come here, of course, I, I don't take it for granted. But, you know, we are bringing, in, uh, you know, a different viewpoint, of course, it's from a fan's point of view, but how has that sharpened your toolkit? Well, look, uh, I think um, it's, it's, it's been very rich for me, uh, Sakib, and I think it's a, even at my age, I think it's a great learning curve because it's exposed me to points of view which I otherwise wouldn't get. So if I'm working for a newspaper and if I write a piece, how many people will respond in a letter to the editor? They may have an opinion, they'll say, baad mein likhta likhte hain baad mein, and forget about it. You know, Maybe you'll get one letter, maybe two letters at most. But here, you write a piece and you'll get a fair amount of feedback. Not just that, I'm also following a lot of people who I think can contribute A, to my knowledge of building up my knowledge of the game, whether they are players or whether they are, you know, some other people, whoever it might be. You know, once I go through my timeline and I find some people making some, uh, they are smart, they are smart tweets, there are engaging tweets, there are, you know, uh, humorous tweets, which all help you understand you know, it just advances your worldview. And I am, I, I really treasure that. So, and also I get to know from feedback, hey, this is where the current thinking is going. So if I'm writing a piece, I better be up to date. You know, I can't be a fuddy-duddy living in the 50s and believing that the greatest things happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s when I was growing up. And after that, it's all been downhill, far from the truth. In fact, I think that we are, you know, as the sport has improved, so have the players. I mean, the players today are... I don't think anybody can say that players of the past were the only great ones and not the current ones. Uh, there are more challenges for the current players and if they're still doing so well, it shows the resourcefulness of the, of the, you know, of the human being. It's a, it's a function of the human race. So I am a great one for believing that the current or the present is extremely important it's the way you perceive it, the way you see it, the way you choose to, you know, absorb what you want. And therefore, also, when you put out something, it should strike somebody as making some sense. Otherwise, you know, you're working in a void. You know, you can keep shooting uh, air pistol in the, in the sky and you hit nothing. So, I, I'm one for, uh, uh, I have a great deal of... Uh, appreciation of the social media and in the, within that I have my preferences I mean I would prefer Twitter I'm not much of a Facebook person for some reason now who would have thought you know it's a, a podcast like this which takes an hour and a half a little more than that is the, is the kind of time I would take 
or maybe just about that much time to write an article. But who would have thought that people would listen to such conversations rather than just read? Because when I write it, it may take me two hours, but it's read in five minutes. But now you got, you know, the, the podcast I did with Amit Verma ran into four and a half hours. And he, you know, he, he sent me a, he, you know, I got to know that people listen to that, that length of time, which I found quite extraordinary. It just boggled my mind. I said, wow, yeah, I mean, people can listen for four hours. Then it's my job to improve my, you know, participation in this kind of, in this kind of communication. It's not enough to say, oh, but who will talk for four hours? There are listeners and this is my expertise. I better do the job well. So I'm also a learner along the way. Yeah, I think Amit Verma's <laughs> podcast is like the test match of podcasts. We all consume it. And, <laughs> and, and you know, everything that was said was, you know, uh, I, I tried to use it here and there. I'm a big fan of his, of course. Uh, so Sharon has a hand uh, before Ayasab goes. I think he wants to say something. Yeah. And then we can wrap a little bit after Ayasab. So Vijay, if you don't mind staying. Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of quickly circle back to the question I asked. I know you have to leave, but I'm really curious to know um, how they rise with social media and even say, for example, players, right? A Virat Kohli or a Rohit Sharma no longer need uh, the media and the journalists to kind of put out their message. So I was curious to kind of get your thoughts on what you thought of this new uh, world where uh, the role of journalists as mediators between the players and the establishment and the fans uh, has reduced and what that means for the journalistic environment in general? I think it's becoming, it has become uh, seriously challenging for the professional journalists because you're right. I mean, the big celebs, those who got millions of followers, they don't really need an interlocutor. They don't need a interface to reach their fans or reach the audience, you know, which in the past would be the journalists or the media platforms. They don't need that. And not just sports persons, they're also ed- people in the entertainment world uh, in the political world and certainly in the business world who say, you know, why should we talk to anybody? Because our message is going across directly from me to my audience. Now, that's all great, but there's also a little bit of a pitfall there and it takes some understanding. Uh, and therefore, I also see a glimmer of hope there for the professional journalist because the one-way communication is is a, is almost like a... It's a farman or a diktat, so to speak, you know. You can only know what I want to tell you. You don't have the... Occasionally, you might say, a player might say or a celeb might say, okay, today I'm going to have a 20-minute Q&A session with fans, those who want to come in. But there also you have the choice not to answer. You're not live. You may choose to just ignore the question and get away, which is quite unlike being in a press conference and a question being asked. And, you know, if it's covered on TV or something, you can see the expression... And therefore, make up your own mind as a viewer as to what is happening. So, one is that the threat is real for the professional journalist. But there's also the, the, the glimmer of hope which I mentioned about it. That I find, I, I believe that there are millions of people who still want to know why, how, who did it. You know, and those questions, if they are not answered they will have to look somewhere else for those answers if they're not answered directly by the players. So for instance, I'm coming back to the recent incident between uh, uh, with the BCCI and Virat Kohli. You know, the captain's change has taken place and it's a one-line communic- uh, one-page press release put out by the BCCI. No explanations given. Because of the furor on social media and then the mainstream media catching on, the next day, BCCI President Saurav Ganguly had to come and give 
explanations on behalf of the BCCI as to what had transpired, whichever way, whether you accept it or not. But he had to go back to the journalists and the media to say, hey, we had said this, he did this, he said that, and so on. So I think that as long as that, you know, uh, that opportunity exists, who, these are the fundamental questions of uh, journalism, isn't it? Five W's and an H. Who, where, what, when, why, and how. And who and where and when can be easily uh, answered. The why and how are can be vexing issues which people still want to know. And this is the information the age we are living in. So they want to be better informed. And if that information is not coming directly from the sources that they are, uh, you know, following or, you know, idolizing, then they will look elsewhere. And that's where I think the, 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 the playing field for the, for the professional journalist still remains intact. Sure. So I think yeah. are, Sakib, I, I, I'd like to Please. add something if I are still yeah. around. So I has rightly said about, you know, the things have changed. The, 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 the job description, the skill set has changed, right? Uh, previously, they could just write 2000 words or 5000 words. It was just writing brilliant prose and it was accepted as the gospel, whether it's R. Mohan or Ayas Mehman or, a, or a Vijay Lokapalli. Now the world has then it went to the blogs. Uh, and then now it has become podcasts and then blogs, right? The, the video logs, which means, or YouTube channels, which means people who write really well, they need not be the best speakers in a podcast and they may not have the best facial expression or the body language to be part of a video because video can be a little confronting, right? So the, the disruption of the industry is real because even if you look at something like Crick Info, they used to have a lot of ball-by-ball -ball commentary and articles. Now they've got more videos, right? Because uh, even the ball-by-ball -ball commentary, you know, lost the revenue because the fact that we have streams and we have the OTTs and the videos, right? So the world has changed the digital and the video. People would love to see pictures and uh, videos and audios. So that's one part of it. To Sharan's question and Naya's question, like I got a bit of a problem when someone says, uh, you know what, uh, an Ashwin will come and uh, give the views of the game on his own YouTube channel, which is a one-way communication. And as I said, there is a reason why we have a press conference. There is a reason why we have a process, right? When players say we've got a mental problem and we can't attend a press conference, I'm happy to give an exception if it's a genuine problem, like, you know, like Osaka, right? That's a completely different thing. But if, if, if Indian players start to say, no, we don't want to go to a press conference, it makes it really hard because... Already BCCI is very stringent in terms of accreditation for journalists. Even Crick Info didn't get an accreditation or they'll say one person from midday, one person from the Hindu, which means it doesn't allow people to do proper analysis from the press box. And then players will show up and do their fancy YouTube channels the days they win because they're in a happy mood. But if it's a process, even when you lose, even when you have a bad day, you are supposed to come and front up to the media. That's part of the you know, the setup, right? Either a captain shows up or the vice captain or a junior player, whatever, right? And uh, so to me, that, that, that sanctity has to be maintained. The other part I'd like to mention is the journalists were the ones who built up these players when they were under 19, when they were playing for their Ranji Trophy, when they were nobodies to the social media, the journalists, the print journalists, the field journalists at the regional level, they were the ones who wrote up about them. Their names came up. The selectors got to know from them. Then they become big. I think there has to be some kind of a two-way give and take, right? Without journalists, without press, um, these players would have never become big. Of course, I don't expect any player to have a great relationship with the press because there are tabloids, there are you know, gossip, and you know, after you become famous, you have other things. But I think 
the whether it's BCC or ICC or other boards, they have to make sure these press conferences and access to the press, uh, uh, the media box for the journalists should remain. We can still have the players and former players having their own YouTube channels as a complementary augmenting thing. I'm okay with that. But to say that that will be the main mode of communication, I've got that's very problematic because that will not allow us, the audience, the consumers, to get the right amount of um, information the way we want and also to be uh, rightly peer reviewed and critiqued, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. That's a point I'd like to add. Well, that's brilliant. I think Ayasab has to leave, but we can carry on for another 10 minutes. Thank you, Ayasab. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Pleasure being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Vijay. All right, so we'll, uh, Vijay and uh, Sharon, I'll take 10 more minutes and then we can wrap it up. No, I think it's a brilliant point, Vijay, what you just said, because then the, any ounce of objectivity will be gone if the practitioners, it's like, it's like Tom Cruise coming on, you know, Jimmy Fallon show and giving his review of the Mission Impossible movies. No, we don't need that. You know, so I think you're absolutely right. I think, and there's another point you made, which is brilliant, that it's the media people or the personnel who create the vibe around a young Virat Kohli or a young Suresh Raina, you know, and that should be intact. It could be a phase, but let's see how it evolves. So let, let us go back to the data, data points. And I haven't asked Sharon many questions. So let me ask Sharon and then Vijay, I'll come back to you. So again, Sharon, not a new question, but, you know, with the, and again, I don't want to take names, but I think, you know, with these new uh, whiz kids who are doing like, you know, data science uh, numbers in cricket, like baseball, they just, data wins, you know, that's an argument I understand. But it takes a very certain aptitude to understand data. Data is not for everyone, which I mentioned. Because some people just want to, you know, enjoy the old purple commentary of pressure and, you know, comet the man, comet the hour. But for you, when you're listening and absorbing all these different vantage points, Sharon, uh, are you at a point to kind of nod your head and say, so-and-so presents real great data and study of numbers. So it's okay to value his or her opinion more than someone who's average 45 or more in test cricket. How do you see that balancing act for your own consumption? So that's a great question, Sakib. So uh, let me break this down. Let me first start by saying that I spend a lot of time thinking about data because I am a quantitatively trained economist. So, and a lot of my work is empirical field research based in India. So, uh, and I particularly look at questions of causality. So, you know, if X happened, did that, you know, if Y happened, did X cause Y or was something else affecting Y, right? So that's broadly the, the, uh, the world of questions that I kind of engage in. Now, with this specific question of data in cricket, I think what we are seeing is an explosion of um, new data that's coming. We are now tracking a whole new bunch of metrics that we were previously not tracking. Think, for example, cricket force control percentage, which uh, many people have now been using to make many claims about how batting itself has evolved over time, right? But not just that, you will think of where the position at which uh, a bowler releases a ball, the amount of ball is swung, where a pitch maps, you know, all of these things have kind of considerably changed how uh, the sport engages with data. And I think it's an important thing to kind of keep in, keep in mind that this is a very recent phenomenon. It's only happened in the last five, 10 years. This is very different from something like, say, uh, data in baseball, which has been a sport that has engaged with data for much longer, which has followed a whole bunch of metrics that cricket wasn't following till much more recently. And so therefore, in some sense, the role of data and the and the level of data analytics at baseball has reached some kind of a steady state equilibrium where I am much more comfortable uh, taking the data and the analytics at face value than I am with cricket. Let me tell you why. 
one of the big reasons why is a lot of these metrics are new right we don't really know if these metrics actually work on the ground how the measurement of these things actually happen let me give you an example think of the control percentage that i mentioned earlier so a control basically cricket for has this metric that for every ball they record if the batsman was in control or not right so that's just the metric they use and then they say ajinkya rahane was in control of 80% of the balls whereas mohammad shami was in control of 20% of the balls right which is great this is a binary variable uh, it tells you if in control or if not in control however remember that it doesn't tell you that how much in control someone was let me give you an example suppose i play a perfect forward defense i am fully in control yes uh, uh, but i can hit the same ball for four right i am fully in control or i am in control on both shots but the outcomes are very different in both right so it doesn't tell you if and and think uh, my favorite example in the in the real world in cricket actually is pujara so pujara is a not in control a lot much more than the average person uh, especially because but he plays with such soft hands that it doesn't matter that he is not in control him being in control or him not being in control doesn't really affect his outcome so now of course fielders have realized this at least uh, visiting teams new zealand for example had their slips much closer because they know now that pujara plays with such soft hands but i think control doesn't always give you the perfect metric and now therefore to take something like control and to extrapolate from that to saying that uh, virat kohli has been batting amazingly well or ajinkya rahane has been batting well it makes it problematic because it doesn't tell you uh, enough i think we're not quite there i think we need control plus uh, you know uh, accuracy of shot or power generated per shot or where the ball went after you were in control so there are other ways you could kind of pair the control data with to try and make a larger point about batting i think that's one thing there is other uh, one last other debate i want to talk about in terms of data there is the debate on you know who's a good captain and who's not to be honest we don't really know uh, and we don't really have good metrics at all about who a good captain is uh, and so therefore to kind of use these very rudimentary metrics of uh, you know captaincy met- measures like you know whether or not we changed bowlers in a spell i think is Uh, is what we would if i were a serious academic researcher reviewing a paper like a journal article which showed me this captaincy metric i would kind of summarily reject it i would say this data is just noise it's very hard to tell if a bo- if a captain changed a bowling spell frequently or less frequently that so to go from that point to then make a judgment about someone's captaincy abilities is just too much of a leap we are just not quite there so therefore what i think is at this stage we should take the data journalism as a fantastic blessing as a new exploding space that has completely changed how we view cricket as a sport and that's kind of enriching our sporting uh, our sporting experience however i would also be very cautious about kind of jumping on the data bank wagon completely and saying hey uh, you know the data says this sunil gavaskar says something else so sunil gavaskar is wrong i feel like that's just you know not correct I think data does question some of Sunil Gavaskar's uh, long-held, you know, truisms. Some of those things may not be true. Some of the things may be may have been true when he was batting, uh, when he was playing cricket. But over the last thirty years, things have evolved, and perhaps he may not have kept in touch. But that doesn't mean that there are many, many things that a batsman or a bowler who's played the game at any level, but at, especially at the higher levels, will be able to point out that simply someone sitting at home and engaging with data cannot. and there and finally the last point here is uh, i think there's a there's a tendency to also say that you know if players uh, believe in certain things uh, uh, those and those things don't have any bearing in logic the players themselves are dumb or whatever 
uh, right? So there is this whole tendency on Twitter, at least I've seen, where you say that you know some uh, you know players believe that pressure is real or momentum is real, and all of these concepts are actually just concepts that are created out of thin air by commentators and writers, and so therefore they have no bearing on the real world. Actually, that is completely wrong. A player is as much a human being as anyone else. A player feels pressure, even if there, even if that individual ball or individual moment does not actually involve a lot of pressure. If I'm a player, I feel the pressure, right? And that's something to keep in mind. I have a study. I have a study with the same uh, co-author I mentioned earlier, uh, colleague I mentioned earlier ago, earlier uh, called Asad Liyakat, who's a Pakistani American. Um, uh, actually, he's a Pakistani who's now in the U.S. And so we have a paper that shows that across history. Um, if a team scores just above 300 in odi games versus just below the team scoring just above 300 is about 20% likely to win more likely to win so the win percentage is about 60% uh, if you score uh, uh, 66% if you score uh, 298 it goes up to 82% if you score 301 right that's a big result that tells you that it's not about the two three runs of course the two three runs don't make, uh, uh, make any sense it is about the players mentality players are humans players think like all of us when we go to a store and we see something priced at $9.99 we will buy it we won't buy it if it's at $10.01 right it's just all of these things so we have to keep in mind that there are many complex elements to data and it's not uh, it's very hard at this stage to make very strong causal claims uh, about anything in cricket right now No, I think that's brilliantly put, especially you know the pressure part because that's something we and Vijay have discussed a lot in our phone calls and prepping for the pods. And pressure exists, you know, like uh, you know all these guys like you know Djokovic or Kohli, they've hit thousands of balls, millions of balls to get there. But the match ball which they get out of which that sails long over the baseline can result, you know, and especially in cricket can result in you know uh, if you're a pujara can result in you not playing the next match even the new zealand match which india had already won the second test pujara was sent to open after duck where he got a pretty good ball in the first uh, innings uh, again you know some people say he's stat padding but then another failure would have just say okay you know what he shouldn't be on that flight to south africa so try tell me there is no pressure there on an international cricketer so vijay that sets the stage for you to come in sharan made some you know uh, very you know good points so again the same question to you that's the beauty of this podcast or these exercises same question it's like not an examination but every mind thinks differently so even kohli on a recent article was said compared when comparing to sharma the sharma respects data and kohli is more intuitive innovation in imran khan old school like kind of a guy so so do you see again the same conversation like you know the data analysts of today who are crunching in these big numbers and showing game in a very different light uh, what is a balancing act Uh, do you still take Ian Chappell's word, even though he's kind of many people say an outdated guy, you know, who hasn't played for a very long time? So, as as a, as a consumer of cricket, I know you continuously challenge yourself. So, what is the balance sheet of these two school of thoughts, and uh, is there a correct way? I mean, are you fifty five percent one way or forty five the other? So, Sakib, I know we had an earlier pod about uh, the data, right? I mean, uh, Sharan has made some very good points. So you picked Ian Chappell. Let me just bring Ian Chappell. Right, a lot of people think Ian Chappell is a storyteller uh, who talks based on intuition and history, but Ian, Ch- Ian Chappell also takes data very seriously. To give an example, this is way back 20 years ago. You know, in the mid 90s, he used to say on TV, as a captain, 60% of the dismissals happen um, either you know you get caught either at first slip. or by keeper or a gully 
He said historically from 1877 for the last 100 plus years, these are the places where catches go. So if you're bowling a spinner, if you're having a quick bowler, new ball or old ball, as long as you keep those fielders, you'll do fine. You're not going to get too many catches in third man or in fine leg or, you know, mid wicket, etc. So even when people talk about common sense or as we call them as dinosaurs because they're from a different era, they've also gone through uh, data and analytics. To Sharon's point, I think he brought out a very important point about, uh, you know, this uh, this factor about whether the bat, the batsman or a batter was in control of the shot. Now, I, I'm, I'm happy with that kind of statistics to come out, but I'm a big fan of multidimensional data, right? When I say that you need to have, you know, more, uh, you know, nuances to come in. At the same time, where cricket uh, stats has to improve is it still it doesn't have a defined standard standards in terms of how to measure the stats, right? Uh, like for example, uh, because the sport is a very different sport, it's an episodic sport. It's a it's a, it's an individual sport within a team sport. Like technically, there are nine guys who are like twiddling their thumbs, um, uh, so so to speak, at the dressing room, which is very rare for a sport like this. And of course, baseball is very similar, right? Uh, so to me. Cricket needs to have, um, um, you know, as Sharon talked about, the ball by ball is still not there uh, prior to 1999. Uh, but I would like to challenge every um, uh, surmise or an inference to see whether it matches to the data. If it doesn't match, I got a problem. But I think what I would like to see in cricket uh, stats is I think the Crickwiz and others have to do more uh, to make data more accessible. But it's all about, it's just one thing to generate data, which a lot of people are doing, but to sift through it, to analyze, find patterns, connect the dots, and then more importantly, you have to remove the bad data. And also, to Sharon's point, data without context is really bad because it gives all kinds of wrong connotations, wrong uh, summaries or inferences, right? Um, I think that's something uh, that's important. And also, I know Sharon is from the, the academics and I'm from the corporate side. We, we live on data, right? We have massive spreadsheets. We have a lot of things, but we get asked one question, the so what, right? You have to ask the so what question. I think, I mean, I put put out a tweet, uh, I think after the last pod, uh, asking whether Crickwiz asked those, you know, so what question. I think Ben Jones uh, replied saying, we do ask. I believe him is a, is a good, yeah, you know, uh, promising cricket writer and analyst. He, he's written a book, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that has to evolve. We need to have better peer reviews. We need to have better structure so that um, we don't allow some rogue interpretations to happen. And also, we're using a lot of artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning to remove the biases uh, out of the algorithms, right? I'm sure Sharon is an expert. He will, he will know more about it. And I think we need to have that kind of a mechanism to be put in place so that the cricket stats or data that we collect, um, whether it's for wicket keeping, whether it's for runs, whether it's for the control, the swing or the seam. Because, you know, I had asked her one question, right? I remember, I think that was uh, Shardul Thakur. Uh, I forgot the bats, uh, batsman who got dismissed in, in England um, uh, in, in the English summer. It was a wide ball uh, and it was a bit of a, you know, a poor poke at it and he got dismissed but the ball swung so i'd immediately ask the question what would crickwiz say for this would it say that the ball swung appreciably and it is so wide or would they say it was a pretty bad shot and again it comes down to the interpretation of the person right so i think that's where you know more amount of data has should lead to 
better interpretations so that we need to evolve our you know protocols procedures standards and stuff now coming back to sakib to your point yes absolutely i get i challenge myself every day on anything and everything i know so to me i'm a big fan of uh, data and statistics and i think there is a new norm now that fielding is not important previously we used to hear things like after you hit a boundary uh, immediately get a single rotate the strike t20 has completely made it into a different game the power hitters and the way they train and also the importance of fielding the ground fielding's kind of come down it's more like as long as you safe catches you don't need to pick somebody purely based on that like i i belong to a school of thought where i would have always picked um don talent as a you know all time australian keeper uh but now like uh, you can't just pick someone based on keeping alone that keeper has to contribute in terms of you know runs and that too at a at a, at a, a fair clip uh so i agree with a lot of things that sharan has said just that i want i'd like to see the evolution of the the standards and protocols and the way we measure how we interpret and how do we make sure we have better peer reviews like for example I have a huge amount of respect for someone like cricketing view kartike adate right he writes substack and he he does a lot of stuff for, for cricket for uh, what's the best way to peer review that you know jared kimber jared kimber is another fantastic person who uses the new ways of doing patreon or substack whatever he uses right he charges people i'm sure a lot of people are paying for that but the question is who reviews that right who reviews it because he comes up with some wonderful graphs he comes up with some wonderful interpretations about how ashwin has been the best ever bowler against left handers right the problem with that kind of data who goes through those you know thousands and thousands of reams of data to make sure the interpretation is right because otherwise what happens uh, the people who have access to the data and people who know a lot about the data they can set the narrative that can be doubly dangerous so i think i would rather see better regulators better peer reviews and better transparency so that everyone knows how this comes out so that so the other day they put out data right 1500 runs in a calendar year you know uh, mohammed yusuf uh, there was sachin tendulkar there were a couple of times you know uh, ricky ponting it's easy because there the error of uh, you know error is going to be very limited like ponting might have scored 178 in an innings that could have been won by that would have been added as a run so there's a difference between 177 and 178 or uh, such in tendulkar was there and then you know uh, root was there so those kind of uh, data statistics is a lot easier to measure but some of the other things that sharan talked about the seam versus swing versus wobble versus 3/4 versus you know um, uh, did it um, um, you know seam first and swing later and all those things and also control those things need uh, you know more of you know i would like to see more things coming up i'm not going to say no to that i would rather listen to them but i'll, I'll be a bit careful before forming a judgment or a conclusion come to a conclusion based on that that's my summary sakib i just have a quick point to add to this sakib uh, i completely agree with vijay i just want to say that if people are putting out interpretations of data that is they're taking the raw data and then kind of creating metrics out of it and then making interpretations and analysis out of it i would like to see the code that does that that's the basic like you know if you were if in terms of peer review i think that's another thing i would love to see i would love to see if you're writing in python or whatever you're writing your code in i want to see the code i want to see how you went from the raw data and created those metrics because those involve a lot of them will involve a error which is fine which you can usually fix in code but b also a lot of them will involve interpretation errors like what sat uh, vijay mentioned with the outswinger uh, that shardul thakur bowled so i think it's important uh just to pad up just to i'm just adding on to vijay's peer review point it's really important you want to see these things before you make very strong claims based on 
uh, based on the the data yeah so so to to your point uh, sharan when crickwish says ever since we started recording 2006 this spell of bowling was the 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 most wildly swinging spell i got a problem with that because you're talking about a 16 year old data it's not like 120 year data and how did the measurement happen in new zealand versus england versus india versus you know do you include reverse swing and conventional swing so when 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 crickwish makes those statements i started to think okay what as you rightly said what is the underlying algorithm or a, a source code what was the methodology right because if nasa makes a claim or if a european space agency makes a claims about galileo people will challenge that because there is a peer review process you can't publish something as a white paper in any academic circles in the western countries without going through a review process so right now you have everything as a you know proprietary information you make it prohibitively expensive for people to access it and then you come out with your own interpretation i'm, I'm great i'm glad that we're getting crickwish data but i would love to see more uh, you know ways of you know people knowing the methodology how you arrived at it and be able to challenge and help them to make it better okay you don't have to give away a proprietary thing because you paid huge amount of money to build it granted but let's work together i'm not saying make it open source right this is a little bit of better leadership needs to come either i don't know who has to lead it will it be the broadcasters will it be cricket boards i'm not too sure cricket boards have got a uh, an axe to grind or something to benefit from it so it has to be broadcasters but will it be sky or will it be uh, fox here or will it be uh, star sports india i don't know no i think uh, well said Uh, and you're right which i think the answer lies somewhere in your own response because it's proprietary right now and it's a evolutionary phase right before more hands get to it then you can have a committee that can do an or execute a set peer review right now it's not at that stage it's very sophisticated like even the manga articles when it talks about control percentages that article has the best of both world it it's telling you what happened but it's also telling you the technical nuances that others don't have access to so once the playing field gets more level then i think everything you are wish will get to it but you know twitter is a very funny place because uh, it's uh, again it's, it's it's a good argument you know that's why we're even spending another 10 minutes here uh, because when something new happens everybody wants to correct someone they want to be the first voice and that's how the conversation gets sanitized so i'll take a step back here and i want to throw some slack for players not in the commentary box but overall of course commentators can be territorial as harsha bhogle said to amit verma in a podcast 3 years ago like you know sometimes it's tough to find your voice when you're surrounded by averages of batting average of 50 plus with a microphone and you're the only one who hasn't played at that level so the game took a different shift now maybe vijay and then sharan we can come later are we at a stage where a perfect commentary box should comprise of say harsha bhogle uh, you know anchoring the show or the uh, of the telecast mike atherton you know former player telling you player nuances and a ben jones who's quick on his data telling you you know all the data tangibles that are needed so no one is overstepping and the onus is not on a gavaskar or a wasim akram to learn data because when all these guys spent thousands of hours going to cricket academies then to national centers and then to counties and you know ipl teams they speak a different language they are not studying data they were looking at the baller's hand or you know the same movement is he covering the same and what not i'm not even a cricket professional so their education of cricket was different it's about putting in the hours you know read the situation and you know perfect your skills so when they become captains and commentators their body of work is the, you know the, the the reason they are in that box is because they were captain once they took wickets or scored runs so for them 
to use data, it may not be natural. Some may be natural, like a Nasir or someone will be very quick to learn from a quick quiz show and then use that in instances. Again, I'm generalizing things here, but do you think that conversation also needs to take a step back just because someone scored a lot of runs, they can be a good interpreter of data? Or maybe what my thesis is, not thesis, my conclusion is we should have like three different kind of commentators, uh, a quick quiz analyst, uh, or a data analyst and a former player and a Harsha Bhogle. So, Sagib, it's a very interesting question. I'll give a present example, right? So, was it yesterday, uh, day two or day three, uh, last 15 minutes I had to go out. So, I was listening to the ABC radio commentary of the, the Gabba test from the Ashes, uh, the Ashes test from Gabba. Uh, Andrew Moore, who's like a, your Harsha Bhogle kind of a very passionate caller. He does a lot of rugby league and uh, uh, cricket as well. Uh, he's not a former player, but he's a caller. Ian Chappell was the expert. Um, and Rick Finlay, because they were just talking about, you know, Joe Root, what he has done in Australia before. So Andrew Moore was talking, Ian Chappell being Ian Chappell, he was telling the stories and he was explaining the game and stuff. And they had to know something about it. They just immediately asked Rick Finlay, um, who's a, a Tasmanian-based, uh, you know, uh, a stats person. And Rick Finlay, even he, he was asked that question uh, out of the blue. So he took some 10, 15 seconds to, uh, you know, open up that particular browser or whatever. And he started to give an answer. So that's classic example of what you're talking about, Sakib. Uh, there's a summarizer, there's a, um, and there's a, an expert, technical expert who can talk a little bit about the numbers, but, or who can interpret the numbers that a, a particular person is going to give in that way. Now that's for radio. So if you look at TV, right, TV has already evolved, right? Trent Copeland, I mean, you wouldn't probably see him, um, on um, unfortunately on uh, your international feed because he's just on channel seven trent copeland uh, does that you know that kind of a stats uh, for us right uh, where did the ball pitch put that you know heat map kind of a stuff and uh, you know during segments i'm sure for fox hussey does it i watch more uh, i mean australian cricket on uh, seven just for the better commentary uh, and similarly for sky sports nasa hussein does it um, you know sometimes even atherton so so they have started to use the data and I think the former players have started to understand the nuances of when they are given data, I think they're smart enough to understand, okay, this is the pitch map, a lot of balls uh, hit this particular area, a lot of balls did this, et cetera, et cetera. So I think to your point, it is there. But I worry for the Harsha Bogles or I worry for the, the non-playing um, commentators because I think the world has changed unless they have, you know, like a, even Mark Nicholas, right? Former Hampshire player. He, he he didn't play for England. So Mark Nicholas is a brilliant summarizer, speaks very well. But again, he's a former county player, former Hampshire captain. So there are going to be very few non-playing cricketers who are going to be there because cricketers have realized these days, Sakib, that there is a life after retirement. So therefore, they have started to improve their articulation, communication skills, especially when they go all the time to India to cater to those 500 TV channels. By the time, you know, they get into the media career, they're reasonably groomed, unlike in the 80s and 90s when they had to learn something on the job. Uh, so I really worry a little bit about these non-playing um, experts to be in the box uh, because even players like Isha Guga, right? Uh, Izzy, uh, Isabel Westbury. Isabel Westbury was a captain of Middlesex. Isabel Guga played for England. So even the women commentators, the ones are coming up, they are former players. So the world has changed a bit. Now, I completely agree with you, whether it's uh, Freddie Wilde or uh, a Ben Jones, kind of a, a crick quiz person, rather than a previously just a stats person like a Mohandas Menon or a, um, or a you know, Rick Finlay. These guys could give that information. It's already happening. 
but to your point, I think a former player is a very smart. When the data is presented in a in a, a simplistic form, which can be understood in cricketing terms, these guys are good enough to pick it up, right? As uh, Sharon talked about, you give raw data, big spreadsheet, they'll struggle. If that's presented in a nice graphical representation, in cricketing terms, our former cricketers are brilliant, like Nasser Hussain, Michael Atherton, Simon Dool, uh, or even Trent Copeland. So I think that field of you know analysis, uh, even Mike Hussey, right, that's already happening. Now, I'll give another example, right? They were talking a little bit about the other day about Jeff Thompson, 1974-75, and how quick, quick he was. I think Tim Lane was there as the main commentator, Ricky Ponting, probably Damien Fleming. I, I don't exactly remember. Uh, and there was, I think Tim Lane said there were no speed guns when uh, Thomas bowled in 74, 75 or 75, 76. Uh, if there were speed guns, he would have been measured at 170 kilometers per hour. And then Ponting came back with a very subtle comment. He said, if anyone had bowled quicker than Shoy Bakhtar and Brett Lee, I, don't, I wouldn't like to believe that. Because he has faced both Shoy Bakhtar from Pakistan and Brett Lee from Australia, right? Uh, uh, both at the Nets as well as in the domestic cricket. So to me, that kind of tells you um, players like Ponting don't believe this historical of Tomo was the quickest, Holding was the quickest, right? He says, I faced Shoy Bakhtar, especially at the WACA uh, in 99-2000 as well as in 03-04, and I know how quick he was, if anyone was quicker. So I think that's where this whole, I, I would have loved to have, have Ian Chappell there because if he had told that Ian Chappell, he would have punched him. Definitely, right? Saying, oh, what do you know about the game? Like, everything was great. I mean, that's where Ian Chappell can be a little bit. Everything was great in my day, though I'm his biggest fan. So I think challenging this conventional wisdom that Tomo was the quickest. And also the other thing, Sakib, cricket is probably the only game where we don't acknowledge the fact that the improved biomechanics, improved health, improved diet, improved physical conditioning hasn't made us better cricketers, stronger cricketers, um, or scientifically advanced cricketers. We still think, uh, you know, 32-33 at uh, Bodyline was one of the fastest in 70-71 with the John Snow, and then 70-75. So it probably is one game where we still look back to see how things were faster. I think science is advanced. Look at someone like Cameron Green, right? He's quite tall. He's bowling at around 140. Um, he may not become you know, 200 wicket plus player, but I think the conditioning and other things have improved uh, the human beings to become scientifically advanced, like weight training and diet and whatever they do, right? So I think some of the narratives will be challenged um, by some of the actual data points about speed guns and stuff. But of course, there'll be some people who'll still say that um, you know, everything was great in my day. To, uh, to your point, I think the evolution is already happening. Those, you know, analysis based on quick quiz has started to hog the limelight for some of the broadcasters. And I think former players are perfectly fine as long as the data points come out in, in a cricketing form. That's my summary, Sakib. No, I think that's quite the unpacking. And I think we can wrap this up if we are almost at the two-hour mark. Sharon, do you have a con- concluding remark on what's been discussed before, you know, and then we can wrap the show? Yeah, I just want to say that uh, in terms of fandom, I think we are in a very exciting phase of uh, fandom in cricket. Uh, cricket has is changing in a dramatic way. We are now seeing more T20 games kind of coming out. Uh, and and gaining more and more priority. Domestic leagues are becoming bigger. Uh, So that kind of is exciting in its own way, right? As a test fan, you may feel like, oh, wow, this is kind of scary. But as a cricket fan, you may think, oh, well, there's more variety. 
um and uh, to go back to the earlier points of ayaz and uh, and vijay uh, the fact that cricket is slowly but steadily expanding to newer countries exploring newer horizons is a good sign perhaps it could be faster but as a fan i'm always more excited i don't you know a few years ago we played sri lanka every week uh, and i don't want to go back to those days so i would love to see more teams and as a fan i'm excited for what the next decade or so brings uh in terms of variety of uh, cricket uh, formats and also variety of teams and individuals that we get to we get to see uh there are of course things i worry about as a fan the most important of all being uh the way cricket is governed at uh, both the national level in india and in the, and in international level again at the national level there are many many positives i don't want to take away from that but let me just focus on a couple of negatives i feel like um there should be more transparency at the top and again this is all coming back Uh, uh after reading commonwealth of cricket by ram guha which is kind of fresh in my mind there has to be more transparency in processes that's what the bcci should owe at least its fans and at an international level the fact that we as indians are uh, or the indian cricket board is so powerful it falls upon them uh to try and make the sport better for not just themselves but for everyone else uh playing the sport so Uh, and and the, and it is time like ayaz was saying earlier that the indian board realizes that the health, future health of the game will ensure the future continuation of profits for the indian board itself so as long as we keep the larger global perspective in mind uh, and the bcci doesn't behave like the other cricket uh, other cricketing nations that dominated cricket in the past like the australians and the english uh, we i think will have a, a a good few decades going forward but i still worry about the excessive concentration of power in one nation uh, and and that's something that i always worry about not just in cricket but in business or anywhere else if there's too much power concentrated in a small set of individuals or groups that's always a recipe for disaster that's all i have to say thank you no that was brilliant vijay anything you like to add as we end the show uh i think nothing much i think uh, i would like to endorse some of the sharan things because uh brazil doesn't have that kind of a say in in football not as germany despite being uh, very powerful in terms of what they've achieved on the field i think i'm glad to see a person of indian origin or an australian citizen uh to see bcci in indian cricket uh not just becoming very powerful in terms of the monetary thing indian team has become a very very strong team especially the test side uh, having won a couple of series in australia but again as i as i said before we need to see a little more leadership from bcci on some global topics uh, whether it's spread of the game or finding some solutions to pink ball or you know uh, some of the uh, liability clauses so that the game can continue at the same time i think broadcasting is a bit of a worry because what i'd like to see is there was a time when um, there was no tv available there was no cricket coverage on tv it was radio then the explosion of satellite tv made it accessible to a lot of people especially in the indian subcontinent to see a lot of cricket now internet has made it easier in terms of the uh, streaming and stuff but what i'm getting a little bit worried is the 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 fragmentation of the broadcasting market right um you probably have to subscribe to multiple streams and multiple services to watch cricket and that's not going to be healthy right because i'm i'm a bit worried whether we're going to lose the casual fans because still there are a lot of people who watch cricket on tv versus now i'm told there is something called fan code in india um, and then you have to subscribe to multiple you know you need to have uh, i mean hopefully net um, people are telling me netflix will have cricket uh, facebook will have cricket in a way it's good it will be on people's devices but i just want us to be a bit careful to have more cricket on free to air tv so that there are more people who are watching it 
uh, and also easily accessible because the diehard fans uh, would pay for any subscription, but we don't want to lose out on the uh, on the casual fans or women and others who who aren't fully into the game, but we want to embrace all of them. The other thing I'd like to call out is, um, I know this is a slightly different topic. Uh, I think we need to have better, uh, more coverage of the women's cricket. Uh, I think that that one particular element of the sport has progressed well. Uh, but unfortunately, BCCI hasn't done the, the women's IPL. Uh, there are economic factors, but I would like to see uh, more focus on that because as leaders, BCCI have an obligation to grow the game. And uh, having half the population, uh, they need to be spending... I know the Indian team has progressed well, uh, but that needs there has to be more investment towards it. Um, coming back to that commentators, one summary on that is um, I'd like to see um, I, I'd like to see uh, more and more data becoming uh, democratized so that we have available it's becoming accessible. Uh, and I love the Twitter and I love the social media. I think long may it continue without the abuse because the ability to interact with a lot of former players, the ability to interact with journalists and the ability to get on this podcast and have someone like Ayaz uh, and also have someone like Sharon from a very different field. Uh, I think it's a great leveler. Uh, let's hope that social media, especially from a cricket context, is used properly and judiciously so that all of us benefit. Uh, the last thing you want is to have these, you know, uh, abuses and threats and uh, whatnots to derail what is an excellent medium, which which has allowed people from all over the world to come together and you know share a lot of things. That's my summary, Sakib. Yeah, that and that wraps up a brilliant show. Thank you both, and thank you, Ayaz, who left, who had to leave. He had a time constraint, so I would just like to add. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, people who know me. It was always tennis first and cricket second for the longest time. But this podcast has just, you know, uh, made me fall in, uh, you know, love with the game again. I'm more critical, but I think as a 45-year-old, I think I'm, you know, just more grumpy. So I'm not like a fan of, uh, you know, a cover drive like I used to be. But uh, I care. That's why I invite all these people on my podcast and we try to discuss sometime relevant and redundant issues because I firmly believe uh, each issue deserves a different voice. And sometimes you may hear, uh, you know, a question that has been asked to Sharda was asked to Sharon today. But uh, that's that's the point of these conversations. So thank you both, Vijay. I know it's like 1.19 uh, a.m. in Sydney. And Sharon, I know you have a flight to India coming up soon. So thank you both for taking out this uh, time slot to do a two-hour podcast. I will work on this today and release it. So, you know... Uh, you both can uh, publicize it on your social platforms. And uh, yeah, we should ca- carry the conversation on. Let's do this more of these podcasts. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much, Sakib. Thank you so much. Thank you.